Let me tell you what Like a Virgin is about. It's all about a girl who digs a guy with a big dick. Entire song. It's a metaphor for big dicks. No, it ain't. It's about a girl who's very vulnerable. She's been fucked over a few times, and then uh, she meets a guy. Who's whoa, 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 whoa! Time out, Green. Kobe. They tell that fucking bullshit to the tourists. Toby, who the fuck is Toby? Like a Virgin's not about some sensitive girl who meets a nice fella. That's what True Blue's about. No, granted, no argument about that. What's True Blue? No, you ain't heard True Blue. It's a big ass in from I don't even follow that type of the pop shit. Even I've heard of True Blue. Yeah, so I didn't say you heard of it. You know, what I asked is, how's it go? Excuse me for not being the world's Madonna fan. Personally, I can do without her. I used to like her early stuff. Borderline. When she got out into that poppy don't preach phase, I tuned out. But you guys are, like, making me lose my train of thought here. I was saying something. What was it? Oh, Toby's that little Chinese girl. Who's the last name? What's that? That's an old address book I found on a coat I haven't worn in a cruise age. What's that name? What the fuck was I talking about? It's a true blue. It was about a guy... Uh, sensitive girl who meets a nice guy, but like a virgin with a metaphor for big dicks. Hey, let me tell you what like a virgin's about. It's all about this coos who's a regular fucking shit. Now I'm talking morning, day, night, afternoon. Dick, 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 dick. How many dicks is that? A lot. So one day she meets this John Holmes motherfucker, and it's like, whoa, baby. I mean, this cat is like Charles Bronson in The Great Escape. He's digging tunnels. All right, now she's getting this serious dick action. And she's feeling something she didn't feel since forever. Pain. Pain. Chew, Toby, chew. It hurts. It hurts her. It shouldn't hurt. You know, her pussy should be bubbling up by now. But when this cat fucks her, it hurts. It hurts just like it did the first time. You see, the pain is reminding the fuck machine what it was once like to be a virgin. Hence, like a virgin. Welcome to the Film Effect Treatment. It's the Film Effect Podcast. I have sharpened up my blades. This cellular is being shredded to bits. I've smoked a lot of fucking weed in my life. I don't think I've ever scored weed at 8 o'clock in the morning. So we're kind of like an afternoon, you like drive time type thing. Or like the type of podcast you listen to at work. So let's get down to the nitty gritty. Hello again and welcome to the Film Effect Podcast, a weekly show that deep dives into a different film each episode in an effort to give it that full Film Effect treatment. I'm Ed. Yeah, I'm sure. And this is Reservoir Dogs. Put the gun down! Hear your names, Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? Who cares what your name is? Yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're Mr. White. You have a cool-sounding name. Let's go to work. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. What happens if the manager won't give you the diamonds? Cut off one of his fingers. The little one. I feel scared because I fall off the chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. If they hadn't have done what I told them not to do, they'd still be alive. It's so hard to keep this mouth on my face. I'm all over the place. You're acting like a first year thief. I'm acting like a professional. And your family. Doing 10 years, taking out some shit for months. Ain't no choice at all. Bam! 
Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Chris Penn, Steve Buscemi, Lawrence Tierney, and Michael Madsen. They're the Reservoir Dogs. Hey, Joe, want me to shoot this guy? All right, in Reservoir Dogs, when a simple jewelry heist goes horribly wrong, the surviving criminals begin to suspect that one of them is a police informant. Ah, so we kick off our Tarantino year with uh, this little ditty. Let me tell you, I swear to God, something about this movie, the, the, the more I watch it, the more I just, I, I love so much about it. Just put it out there right now, and I, I feel like I, I develop a, a deeper appreciation slash, uh, I think a deeper love for it uh, every time I watch it. I don't know what it is. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's so uh, fascinating about it. Yeah, me too, man. It's just like it was. It was. I remember, you know, back in '92, it was just like lightning in a bottle, and it was like literally the coolest thing we had ever fucking seen at that time, especially for you know my generation. This is the coolest fucking flick ever made. Yeah, exactly. You know, it was definitely like the start of a new era uh, in in filmmaking. Uh, Tarantino definitely put the groundwork and effort in for. uh, They all they all kind of came out around the same time. It was like you had Tarantino, Alexander Rockwell, Robert Rodriguez, and Allison Andrews. They were like they were coming out of Sundance. Yeah, touted as like the new voices in Hollywood, you know. Yeah, and, and Tarantino arguably, you know, went the farthest with it, without a doubt. But yeah, those were it was, it was like like we, I was able to witness like a new era in cinema. Like, kind of felt like how my dad must have felt when, you know, when Coppola and Scorsese and De Palma were, you know, were just starting to make waves before. You know, before I was born, before you were born, you know, like that was this was my time to shine. Right, right, exactly. Uh, you know, and we're coming up on the 30th anniversary of the premiere of this movie at Sundance. Speaking of, like almost to the day, January 21st. Christ, fucking old. And man, it's 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 crazy. You know, this is like I said, we're celebrating the. 30th anniversary of Tarantino's career and I, I definitely wanted to kick that all off with this movie um, it, it's only fitting too I know there's other films that you could argue that he got his you know breakthrough in with screenwriting you know argue that true romance and natural born killers also played a part but this was this was the one this was the film that established the filmmaker Quentin Tarantino yeah this um, is the one that made Made people stand up and take notice of the name. Yes. You know, you might have seen it once or twice in the opening credits. Alright, first time viewings. Uh, it's, it's just that. You see, this is actually uh, my, my first time. No, no, my first, it's my first time uh, since my first time. So, technically, that's my second time. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to suck at it so if i'm not a i saw this for my first time i was late to the party i saw this about 10 years after it came out i rented it at blockbuster right before the grand like 
10 year anniversary uh, release. They put out like five different DVD covers, like for slip sleeves of the different character from the film. Um, I remember they, they did that in the summer of 2002. This was right before that because it was like the standard, whatever the bare bones DVD was that live entertainment put out. Uh, that's what I rented. And then like a handful of months later, they had put, they re-released it with, uh, I don't know if you remember it or not. They had like different slip covers. Oh, no, I had it, dude. I had, I had Big Daddy take me to three different stores till I found the Mr. Blonde slip cover. I was pissed. I wound up finding Mr. Blonde at, I think, the Dundalk or Golden Ring Walmart. Like, he's like, what about Mr. Pink? I'm like, I don't want to know now. I want Mr. Fucking Blonde from a slipcover, man. I had Pink, but I think everyone else had Pink, too. I think Pink was the common one that was available. Like, Yeah, Blonde was hard to find. I have it around here somewhere still. Yeah. That's one of the slip sleeves I kept was my Mr. Blonde. Yeah, I was determined. We went to a couple different stores. Yeah. It's unfortunate not every character got their own slipcase, but it was still a cool thing for its time back. You got to remember this was 20 years ago when yeah. like slip covers were kind of a new thing all in general. So, and it, it was kind of a big deal. I remember it, but yeah, that would be my first time like once right before that. So about 20 years ago, I first saw it. So, um, mine has a small story behind it. Uh, I remember Justin is actually the one that, that, originally told me about this film um i i don't even know if he remembers this story but i remember it was one night like i i had thrown like a my mom had went out of town for a weekend so i threw like a big house party i told you before how my basement used to be like you know i had my whole room was the club basement with a little dj booth and shit so it was like you know yeah kind of like a little party palace you know and i remember justin shows up with a couple of our friends from high school and there have been people coming and going all night he shows up i don't know about 2 33 in the morning everybody's drunk and just having a good old time and we're sitting around and he's he tells me he's like this movie reservoir dogs is one you need to keep an eye out for and this is back in you know 92 there was no you know, JoeBlow.com or nothing like that. It was all, it was grassroots word of mouth type shit. Right. And, um, I think he, he probably caught it at the Charles, I guess. Cause he, you know, he had been telling me just how cool this film was. I should look out for it. So I remember, you know, not too long after that, a few weeks, maybe a month or so later, um, I'm up at drug city video looking for, you know, something to bring home. And I seen him like, that's that movie Justin talked about. So I read it on VHS and gobsmacked blown away right and oh yeah i, I read I, I i immediately rewound it rewatched it and then at the time i was working at staples office supply up at east point at a buddy of mine um used to work with me ray marseglia you know we would always hang out after work and on the weekends and stuff and i remember i had to work one day and he didn't he picked me up I'm like Dude, you should you know i gotta take this back you should check this out and he watched the damn thing like two or three times. I right. think I'm out of paying a couple day late fees on it. But he's like, man, yeah, that movie's badass, dude. It's a cool flick. You know? So, yeah, mine would have been VHS, but it's original VHS release in, you know, 92, 93. All right, story time. Tell me a story. Wait. Like my story? No, not your story. A story. Since you can't keep your mouth shut long enough for me to read my paper, tell me a story. I don't think I know any stories. You don't know any stories? No. All right, I'll tell you a story. This is a newspaper, right? It's 90% bullshit, but it's entertaining. 
That's why I read it, because it entertains me. You won't let me read it. So you entertain me with your bullshit. Tell me a story right now. Go. So it's not particularly a story that involves me or my first time, uh, or even the movie, really. It's about the movie, actually, but it's not... Um, we just talked about our first time seeing it, and this pertains to my daughter Madeline's first time, because last year, or two years ago, Christ, it's going on two years now, whew, uh, when her and I had uh, our first pod, first, uh, our first podcast, Mad Dad Movie Review, this was one of the first movies that we did. I actually uh, introduced her to Tarantino, and I figured, eh, I think Reservoir Dogs would be the safest of his filmography to uh, yeah, show safe in, a 12 year old at the time. It's, it's like, a, you know, it's still a little rough around the edge. Yeah, it is. Not quite it as is, polished as, you know, Pulp to, Fiction. And, yeah, movies like Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown, out the door. She's not going to under, yeah, understand you, it. Yeah, not to mention that, like, they, they at that point, they had, they had studio money behind them, whereas this was a true independent production. You know, you right. can see the difference in the on the screen. And I thought about Kill Bill, but I don't know. Something about the whole two movies in her attention span. Yeah, I mean, you can't just do one. You can't just do one. Exactly. So got and then you, you have to sit her there for, what, four and a half, five hours to <laughs> yeah. wrap the whole story. The, the whole, I, I would love I would love him to finally release that whole damn affair that he's been threatening us with for the last 15 years. Yeah, that's true. Another story for another time. Like, he's yeah. got he's got so much in a to do list, dude. We're probably never gonna see. Probably. You and I were talking about that earlier this afternoon when you were here. Like, I hope I see it, but I'm not holding my breath for any of that shit. So she watched it. She enjoyed it. Um, I could tell she was into it. Uh, she was actually kind of conversating throughout the podcast, which is one of the things that her she was famously famous for doing it was just kind of not have a whole lot to say and lead it to me to do all the talking and rambling throughout a lot of episodes it's but, more like a speak when spoken to but this film she had she had some commentary especially the, some, uh, the, cool. of cool. all the of all the scenes the uh the diner the opening breakfast the the like a version sure. speech sure actually uh had her um talking let's just say that so I'm proud of the episode for what it is. Um, it, again, uh, Mad Dad movie review. There's like episode like five, six, or seven or something like that. We we covered this. So uh, if you guys are bored and want to hear my thoughts again, as well as my 12 year old daughter at the time, then check that out. And uh, yeah, so let's get to our live top five. Rob, it's your turn. Okay, I'm feeling kind of basic today. Top five side ones, track ones. Janie Jones, Clash, from The Clash. Hey. Let's get it on, Marvin Gaye from Let's Get It On. Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit off of Nevermind. Oh no, Rob, that's not obvious enough, not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return? Lewis, so you can uh, get up a- Shut up, shut up. <laughs> white Light, White Heat, Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though and not on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection. The song is Radiation oh. Ruling the Nation. Top five 90s heist films. So. Oh, dude, you didn't tell me 90s. You just said top five heist films. I mean, no, I got I a did big not. list. Is, I no, swear, I Rob, maybe, maybe, well, you texted it to me. 
And no, um, I I, maybe, maybe maybe you put nineties in there and I glossed over it, but I couldn't give you five. I got the, the biggest list I've ever made here with a bunch of honorable mentions, but I couldn't, I you know, there ain't gonna be five of them in the nineties. I'll tell you, I mean, yeah, looking at it, maybe, I don't know, but they wouldn't have, uh, honestly, if you got to go nineties, top five nineties heist films, I said it. Okay. Well, my, my top five aren't nineties, but we, if, if you want to roll my honorable mentions in there, I guess I just misread Judge like top five heist films. I'm like that's a tough fucking list to make. All just right. Heist so it's films in general. top five nineties heist films for me and top five heist films for you, which I'm pretty sure we already did top five heist films, but I could be wrong. Um, yeah. my number five is dead presidents. Underrated, um, you know, overlooked, nineties, mid nineties, uh, urban action or I mean, uh, urban robbery, uh, drama. It's good. It's good stuff. Uh, I've always, I've always wanted to see that. I've never seen it. Never seen it, huh? Yeah. yeah um, you know, I mean, now that I want to see it, Lorenz I have the Tate, opportunity. It's good. Yeah. It really is. Chris Tucker's got a small role in that. Chris Tucker's point, in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before he blew up, it was at the same time yeah. he did Friday. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's your number five non-90s uh, heist film? The, well, the, this one qualifies in the 90s. Oh, uh, okay. you, yeah, th- this one does. This one does. You and I were talking about it earlier today when you were here. Inside Man. It's not 90s. Oh, yeah. Well, it's not 90s, but you're right. It's, it's a heist okay, film. Okay, well, so. see, I, I can't. The, the, the decades blur together when you get this old, buddy. So yeah. you tell me to limit it to 10 years, it makes it really hard for me. Uh, well, my number four is Point Break. Um, uh, mine is Charlie Varick. Who? Exactly. Yeah, not the first time Walter Matthau is going to make my list either. Yeah, this would have this would have been um I want to say you know mid seventies, but yeah, it's uh um um Walter Matthau's like a former crop duster turned bank robber, and it's like you know these inept robbers, you know. Uh, inadvertently steal mob money from a bank and your whole thing is this whole cat and mouse thing of of math house character or charlie barrett you know outsmarting staying one step ahead of both the law and the mob good flick man good flick really cool ending to it but like i said it's definitely not 90s well it's, you already gave up what your other film is going to be i know what it is already right away, so. <laughs> when i said it's not the first time he's yeah i know i know what else is going to hit your list my number okay. three is set it off set it off is oh. really good in case you haven't seen it before or it's been a while I've had um, no. I've never had a desire. Is that the the Queen Latifah, Jada Queen Pinkett? Queen Latifah, thing? Jada Pinkett. Um, uh, not Robin Givens. Who else? There's, there's, there's a bunch of people. Well, Vivica A. Fox. Okay. Uh, Kimberly Elise. That's the other one. Right. Uh, and it, it's really good. I, I saw it when it first came out on on video back in the '90s. After uh, yeah, I think it was like '95 or '96. Uh, I went ahead and rented it because I used to be a sucker for these you know, heist films, especially around this time. And yeah, I, it, it's a film that's actually stuck with, stuck with me to this day. I still remember it. Um, I've, I've only seen it a handful of times, but it's definitely, um, a memorable one. So what's your number two? Oh, number three. Uh, uh my number three is hell or high water. Okay. With ben Foster and, uh, yeah, yeah. Chris Pond. Jeff great, Bridges. Great little, f- yeah, man, that film took, me by surprise man i had no idea of it and all of a sudden it 
you know, I remember coming out, it released on, you know, DVD and Blu-ray when I was working at Best Buy and then right, right. never heard of this film. And then uh, one night me and Manders around it like came on HBO or it was on demand or whatever. I'm like, let's give this thing a run. I'm like, wow, that was fun. That was cool. Original little story. So yeah, hell or high water. All right. My number two is this Reservoir Dogs. Right you? on. Uh, well, all right. So since th- this is Walter Matthau's second, they're taking a pendulum one, two, three. <laughs> you got it, buddy. Let's 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 face it. It's not only is it fucking funny and slick and like Walter Matthau's seventy swagger, but I like to think that that was the inspiration for Tarantino naming all his thieves by color because that's what Robert Shaw does. Well, and, I, know, I that, that's that one of the inspirations. for board games and he likes Clue. And yes, but I think it had, I think it that played a little bit into it. Well, so, I know yeah, it did. Yeah. I, I, it's in my trivia tidbits. We'll get to that later on. Yeah, taking a penalty one, two, three. Uh, number one's Heat. Heat's the king. So. Um, my number one is Thief, of course. Mm, okay. um, but Heat, Heat made my honorable mentions, as did Newton Boys. Um, Coen Brothers, Lady Killers, uh, Ronan with um, De Niro and Jean Reno and yeah, there it is. Um, and um, I, I mean, I'm, I, I, even the Ocean's movies, the '60s and the and and the the the, the, the Soderbergh ones, they're all they're all fun to me too. So they made you know pick an Ocean's film that made my my honorable mention too. All right, let's talk about Reservoir Dogs. Here we go. So we start with the diner. That kicks the film off. The diner breakfast. Uh, we got the whole gang right before their uh, big uh, heist. They immediately start with Tarantino's Like a Virgin rant. That's the first thing you hear talking about uh, her being painfully fucked like a virgin and that's like the, what the lyrics are about, being fucked by a big dick. Very vulgar with the uh, the language. That's the first thing that you yeah, you take from this movie is just how uh, crass but real the dialogue is like well it's, it's, i mean <clears throat> i don't know about you how, but just like the opening shot with obviously a bunch of guys sitting at, you know it's like the camera spins around the table while the dialogue's just like just firing like you know a mile a minute and it just it's, yes it's it's crisp it's r-rated it's vulgar but it's also very cool and this is where like i realized at that time i was like you know, I am being introduced to the signature flourishes of what's about to be a, a very big, loud, important voice in filmmaking. Like, this is a new type of movie. Like, I've never seen a film open this way before. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I wouldn't say it was cool. And, and I, I would say the, like, the, hearing something like that in a film... You know, that's something that's different. That that's That's what's cool, is like... Like I was trying to get at, like you don't, you've never heard people talk like this before, or if you had, it's very rare, especially in a big Hollywood movie, you know, one that's just so beloved today. And yeah. it, what I'm getting at is that's how people talk. 
Right. And, that was and a lot of a lot of screenwriters, I feel, mm-hmm. were just afraid to write how people actually speak. You know, I can't tell you but how many times I'll watch a movie and I'll be like, no one talks like that. You know? Right. Dude, it's 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 more expository than 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 you know than sincere. Right. You know? So you're gonna get this and, bumbling moron like Mr. Blue who's gonna ramble on about, you know, like a prayer, what he, you know, suspects it's about. While every random every every seldomly you'll hear Joe chime in quoting Toby, which is great. Toby? Toby. Toby Wong? Ah. He, he, I never told Toby's you. a little jab girl. I yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's great, you know? And then White grabs the book, and then we get the line. He said, what know, is this? Ah, it's address book I found in a code I want a coon's age. He's trying to get Mr. Blonde to shoot him, and he's like, you shoot me in a dream. You better wake you up better and apologize. Wake up. I love that line. It's like, sorry, Joe, it's my boy. He's like, I got Madonna's big dick coming out of my left ear. Toby the Jap, I don't know what, coming out of my right. <laughs> and then we got nice guy Eddie mentioning K. Billy's super sounds of the 70s and the songs that are being played. Um, meanwhile, throughout the film, we hear K. Billy. And yeah, who is Stephen that voice? That's Stephen Wright. That's, Stephen Wright, man. That's the guy from Half Baked. Yo, the guy. Yeah. You gotta try this. And then yeah, we I get. I love his. I, I was big into his stand up when I was. In the See, 80s, I'm not man. familiar with this stand up. I know who oh, he is. And I, I never sat down and watched or listened to any of his work it's before. I'm familiar with him. It's like, I spilled spot remover on my dog. Now he's gone. Yeah, because he came out around the time <laughs> when there were so many comedians like. Yeah, it was it would it, like he, he had his heyday in like the mid eighties. He had a look though. He stood out because he yeah. has a face that you recognize. Like I said, a lot of people that are listening probably remember him from Half Baked. He was the guy on the couch who slept the whole movie. That was and he, he shows up as as the psychiatrist in um, Natural Born Killers too. Yeah, another like film with Tarantino ties. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, and then we get the tip rant from Mister Pink. Now, he doesn't believe in tipping. And he doesn't, he doesn't believe tip because society says he has to. Where as far as he's concerned, the waitress is just doing her job and never refilled his coffee six times if he wanted. All right, everybody cough up some green for the little lady. Come on, throw in a buck. Uh-uh, I don't tip. You don't tip? No, I don't believe in it. You don't believe in tipping? You know what these chicks make? They make shit. Don't give me that. She don't make enough money, she can quit. <laughs> I don't even know a fucking Jew would have the ball to say that. Let me just get this straight. You don't ever tip, huh? I don't tip because society says I have to. All right, I mean, I'll tip if somebody really deserves a tip. If they really put forth the effort, I'll give them something extra. But, I mean, it's tipping automatically. It's for the birds. <laughs> I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they're just doing their job. Hey, this girl was nice. She was okay. I mean, she wasn't anything special. What's special? Take you in the back and suck your dick. (laughs) I'd go over 12% for that. Look, I ordered coffee, right? Now, we've been here a long fucking time. She's only filled my cup three times. I mean, when I order coffee, I want it filled six times. Six times? Well, you know, what if she's too fucking busy? Words too fucking busy shouldn't be in a waitress's vocabulary. Excuse me, Mr. Pink, but the last fucking thing you need is another cup of coffee. (laughs) Jesus Christ, I mean, these ladies aren't starving to death. They make minimum wage. 
And I used to work minimum wage, and when I did, I wasn't lucky enough to have a job the society deemed tip-worthy. You don't care they'd count on your tips to live? You know what this is? It's the world's smallest violin playing just for the waitresses. You don't have any idea what you're talking about. These people bust their ass. This is a hard job. So it's working at McDonald's, but you don't feel the need to tip them, do you? Why not? They're serving you food. But no, society says, don't tip these guys over here, but tip these guys over here. That's bullshit. Waitressing is the number one occupation for female non-college graduates in this country. It's the one job basically any woman can get and make a living on. The reason is because of their tips. Fuck all that. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mean, I'm very sorry the government taxes their tips. That's fucked up. That ain't my fault. I mean, it would appear that waitresses are one of the many groups the government fucks in the ass on a regular basis. I mean, if you show me a piece of paper that says the government shouldn't do that, I'll sign it. Put it to a vote, I'll vote for it. But what I won't do is play ball. And it's non-college bullshit you're giving me. I got two words for that. Learn to fucking type. Because if you're expecting me to help out with the rent, you're in for a big fucking surprise. Just convince me. Give me my dollar back. Hey. Leave the dollars there. All right, ramblers, let's get rambling. Wait a minute. Who didn't throw in? Mr. Pink. Mr. Pink. Why not? You don't tip. You don't tip? What do you mean you don't tip? You don't believe in it. Shut up. What do you mean you don't believe in it? Come on, you. Cough off a bucket, cheap bastard. I pay for your goddamn breakfast. All right, since you pay for the breakfast, I'll put in. But normally, I would never do this. Never mind what you normally would do. Yeah, I never had a job that society deemed tip worthy, but it's like, don't tip these people over here, but tip these people over here. And what about, you the, know, you, she works, she, that girl busts her ass, you know, and you see what this is? This is me playing the world's smallest violin. Yeah, it's the world's smallest violin playing just for the waitresses. For the one to depend on tips, then argues no one tips McDonald's workers. It's like his point, he has a point, well, but why it's, not? it's They're you, serving your food. you don't. It's just common courtesy. It's, it's just, we'll chalk it up to that. That's just how it's always been. It is the way. He's like, oh, he's convinced me. Give me my dollar back. <laughs> he does. And Mr. Orange is like, well, hey, give me my buck back. Um, I love how Joe notices right away. He's just like, wait a minute. Who didn't tip? Like, right away he notices that shit when he calls off the money. And this, and this is our first, because Tarantino gives us three clues before the reveal as to who our rat is. And this is our first clue. Because no right away he's like he, you know, he's like, uh, wait a minute, it's uh, who did it's about a it's, uh, it's orange about is the one who says, yeah, orange like, reveals he, it. He rats Mr. Pink out right yeah, away. He's like, Mr. Yeah. Pink, why not? Why don't you tip? You don't yeah. believe in it. Shut up. What do you mean you don't believe in it? Or so orange rats right away. You don't put that together your first viewing, but that's your first little hint. That's that's your first clue. You get a total of three before the big reveal. So we get a fade to black, and that's our diner scene. That's the opening of this movie. That is, um, in my opinion, one of the greatest openings of all film history. Just this, it's it's short, sweet, to the point, memorable. Um, yeah, it's, it 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 introduces you to these characters. You don't yes. get a lot of background, but you know them enough to know that these are motherfuckers you really don't want to cross. <laughs> Absolutely. So now we get our opening credits featuring that famous walk to George Baker Selections, Little Green Bag. Oh, man, it's such a 
great fucking just composition. Talk dude. about iconic scenes. I mean, oh my just, god, this, I this walk, goosebumps. This walk is just every time. All I of them see in their it. suits, just walking down to their car in the back of the the diner. It's just, it's good shit. It's so good. Oh my god, uh, yeah, and then, it's it's. And he's and then, just like, you know, it's it's a close shot on everybody's face as their name shows up in the credits. Yeah. And then it cuts and I'm walking away right as the song kind of peaks at the guitar solo. Like, it's just so perfectly done. As the title card rises up. it's uh, Yeah, it rises up to mid, you know, to mid screen. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't know yet, you know now that you're in the hands of a new kind of storyteller and you are fucking hooked and riveted. At least I was. No, no, definitely. So, let's talk about Tarantino's ear for music and his movies. Because, well, my understanding is he kind of does the whole like the Scorsese thing. Like Scorsese will pick out the soundtrack first, you know, and then right around it. And and, and what Tarantino does is kind of the same thing. Like he will, you know, have like a like a, a set list or like a mixtape or a playlist, if you will. Right. And listen to it while he's writing his script. So like he almost like chooses the song before the set piece and works. So it does like uh, I, so it becomes cohesive like that. And, it, and you know, it, it, not everybody could do it that way, but he seems to found a way to make it work. No, there's a lot of filmmakers who are like that, who are, are just you know, are keen to what the soundtrack's gonna be and focuses on that before anything else. Like, there are people, there are filmmakers who know what songs they want in their film already before it right, even to, roll. To set the mood and the, and the mindset. And sometimes you gotta set them audience. aside because you gotta know what your budget's gonna be for this music because it's not free. True. You gotta pay for rights. True. True. So you, True. You, need, you need to know how much of a budget you're gonna set aside to get these songs. You know, it's to my understanding, you know, James Gunn, of course, he had the mouse in, in his back, you know, in his back corner, but, you know, all the songs for his Guardians movies, and even the new ones, uh, uh, the, the the Suicide Squad, you know, he's he's one of them, another filmmaker who's got well, a ear for it, music. That was, I was like, you know, when I was, you know, when I was messaging you, you know, while I've been watching my, you know, the Miami Vice set that you got me, I'm like, dude, this is incredible. It's like this whole set has the entire original soundtrack. And like you said, that's probably what took it so long was to get releases, clearance of all that shit. You know, they cleared it back in the 80s for broadcast television. And then you got to go back and renegotiate home video catalogs and shit. That's what Miami Vice is chock full of it. It's like watching MTV, you know. That... That's what took the states so long to come out on DVD. Finally, same same thing with the Wonder Years, but both the of Wonder those, Years is all they, I was going to mention. But at, now with the state, they didn't get clearances to everything because there are certain because I have that state box set, and there are certain you know sketches where you'll hear a song that's kind of in person. It's supposed to sound like a song from the nineties, but it's not quite it. One of them being. Um, that song cannonball i forget the name of the band but they didn't clear the rights for the sketch i remember watching the original sketch and cannonball played but you watch the dvd and it's a very similar like baseline and stuff but it's not the, the, the so they didn't even fully clear it for that well the i point, don't know about the wonder years the point is you know without getting off topic that you know, yeah the music rights are a, a big chunk of the budget when you're using 
you know, contemporary music, pop music like this. So he yeah, was able to right. get, for this film alone, we got Little Green Bag, he got Hooked on a Feeling, he got I Gotcha, he got Magic Carpet Ride, um, Four for Love, Stuck in the Middle with You, um, Harvest Moon, Two Bedlam Songs, <laughs> Coconut, you know, he, he got some good ones for this movie, I give it that. Yeah, and, and they, the they right were... Times. Yeah, they, and they wouldn't they wouldn't have necessarily, especially in you know, in in the early nineties, wouldn't have been in high demand for usage like that. So I'm sure they probably, you know, uh, the artists, I don't want to say settled low, but they weren't getting a lot of a ton of offers to use, you know, lime in the coconut, you know, or even little green bag in film. So they were I'm not saying they they did it, they would have did it for nothing, but it's you know, the songs he chooses would have been a lot easier to clear than, you know, a James Gunn soundtrack or a Martin Scorsese soundtrack, you know? Right. So I love how the soundtrack and just the badass, iconic opening scene, hard cuts to orange in the back seat, screaming out in pain from being shot. Who the fucking got that? Hey, just cancel that shit right now. You're hurt. You're hurt real fucking bad. But you ain't dying. I'm gonna die. I'm gonna die. I'm just oh. scaring the shit out of me, Larry. I'm gonna die. I know it. Oh. Excuse me. I didn't realize you had a degree in medicine. Uh, uh, are you a doctor? Are you a doctor? Answer me, please. Are you a doctor? Huh? Um, okay, so you admit you don't know what you're talking about. So, if you're through giving me your amateur opinion, fly back and listen to the news. I'm taking you back to the rendezvous. Joe's going to get you a doctor. The doctor's going to fix you up. And you're going to be okay. Now say it. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Say the goddamn words, you're gonna be okay! Oh God! Say the goddamn fucking words! This this is just a great opening, you know, and full of just, I, I personally love it. You got White, like, he's holding, squeezing Orange's hand. He's like, you're gonna be okay. Say the goddamn Say words. Say the goddamn words. Say the goddamn fucking okay. words. Don't fucking die, Larry. And that was pretty good. in the belly. And Roth is so fucking good and convincing. Yeah, he is. Yeah, this is my every first time, time ever seeing him. Every time I, I watch this scene, I feel like I've been shot in the belly, and I want to go right. to the doctor because I can feel the pain for Roth. And it's like, yeah, he's dude, he's, he's got to be in. Like, let's just imagine for a second that gunshot was real, and he's really in the back seat there. He has got to be in the worst predicament in his entire life. Like, oh hell yeah. You know you're dying. You're in excruciating, endless, just and it is it is a slow death. Pain, you know? yeah. The pain he's in, and you can't. I mean, uh, eventually you're going to go numb out of shock, but this is like fresh, and like you said, like it cuts right from them walking down the alley to the aftermath. So you're like, wow, it's going to be this cut. kind of movie. I yes. thought I was seeing a heist. Like, you know, and credits were like, fuck, I don't even see the goddamn heist. And I, don't, I didn't miss it. You know, he's like, he, he, you don't need it. The heist was your fucking MacGuffin. It just got everybody where they needed to be. That wasn't the crux of the film. We'll talk about that in a little bit. So White and Orange sure. enter the warehouse. 
It's their rendezvous, and they're waiting for Joe. Um, and he keeps on asking Orange to keep him, you know, on his two feet. He's like, who's a tough guy? Who's a tough guy? You are. He's kind of like amping him up, you know, because you can do this. Kind of pepping him. Orange is scared. Yeah, he's like combing his hair. He asks White to hold him. And yes, he, I, I've always loved this little detail. He's holding Orange, and he's just combing his hair for him with this fucking little pull-out blah comb that he has. And White wants to go to a hospital, or Orange wants to go to a hospital, and nearly has White convinced. Um, and, and let's just do it now. We just we talked about Roth. Let's talk a little bit about Kaitel and just both of them in general because they're just so fucking good. They're so good, and Kaitel, like, holy crap, this is what a run! Like in the early nineties, this bad lieutenant. I mean, there are moments of this movie that, if you didn't know any better, you would swear Abel Ferreira directed it and not. But yeah, it definitely, it, it definitely has a bit of an Abel Ferreira feel to it. And um, and and Kaitel wanted the part. Kaitel was instrumental in in. in well, I, we're getting into that. In the he, film yes, made, we got that. That's coming know, up. So, and I think that's why he gives it his all is because he knows he's got great fucking material here that he hasn't seen or is going to get for fucking decades and he wants to be a part of this in any way he can and for him to play Mr. White was just you know perfect so he had three films come out this year in 92 he had this and Bad Lieutenant as I mentioned and the third movie which is funny I bring it up and there's a reason I'm bringing it up Sister Act Sister Act was actually my introduction to Harvey Keitel Little, really, <laughs> little eight-year-old Eddie, you know, bringing her Whoopi, <laughs> and this like tough guy, villain, gangster, like mobster guy is like who's after Whoopi. Yeah, it's like Whoopi Goldberg's boyfriend in the beginning, or something. Yeah, and she right? witnesses him, you know, yeah. him and his goons kill a guy, and that's, yeah, that's yeah, the yeah, whole yeah. movie. But yeah, you know, as I didn't know the fuck Harvey Keitel was, there was no need for me to see movies like this at the t- at the time. I'm like fucking seven, eight years old. So, yeah, it's just funny. The same year as this is Sister Act, and that was the film that, like, introduced me to this guy. And then from there, uh, I, I, I mean, he, he came on my radar because, number one, he's just a fucking good actor. Number two, like, he has this look, okay? Yeah. And yeah. I, remember, I remember after this, um, uh, Point of No Return came out, like, the following year or two after this, and I remember him being in that. as like her ment- uh, Bridget Fonda's mentor or maybe her boss or something. I, I've never seen the remake of La Femme Nikita before. Um, but that was... So, uh, Kaitel, like I said, early 90s, hell of a run. Uh, the aforementioned movies, prior to that, he did Bugsy. Thelma and Louise was the big one. Mortal Thoughts. Um, Two Evil Eyes. I mean, my, the, I my, to bring my Shout out to my horror. Shout out to my horror fam. Two Evil Eyes yeah, from two 1990. Two Evil Eyes, yeah. That was a Romero... Uh, yeah. you no, know, my 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 introduction honestly was when he played Sport the Pimp and Taxi Driver, and then That's probably everyone's introduction to his uh, career probably. And, and I immediately went at like you know I think my dad had shown me that and he said well, you like this guy you should you should see his movie called Mean Streets. I went out and ran Mean Streets right away and I'm like wow this dude's really cool. I fucking love Mean Streets to this day. Yeah. And then Tim Roth. You said this was the first time you saw Tim Roth before? That I noticed him, yeah. Now, granted, he did um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead a year or two before this, but that was you know, definitely under my radar back then. 
you know, as far as, you know, um, uh, uh, an American audience, because this was before he appears in um, Cook the Thief, His Wife and Her Lover, right? Yeah. That's and also um, the hit, which came out in 84, the one with. Um, oh, yeah, that's uh, the one you were telling me about with Terrence Stamp. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've never seen that. I've and uh, seen that. Uh, John Hurt. Um, I want to say the first movie I noticed Tim Roth was. Gosh. I really want to say either Pulp Fiction or Four Rooms. Um, yeah, he was funny of Four Rooms. I forgot. Probably about Four Rooms. Um, either that. Hoodlum stands out. Rob Roy is another one that stands out. That's probably the one. Probably Rob Roy. Because I remember seeing a lot of ads for that. I remember when that was. I've I've never personally seen Rob Roy. I just remember him. Um. Uh, being in the, all the uh, marketing and stuff when that movie came out. So it was around that time. It was definitely after this had uh, come out, Reservoir Dogs. But Tim Roth, man, I mean, he's in so much good shit. Um, and he still continues to act to this very day. Um, fucking Hateful Eight. Jesus Christ. He, he kills me every time as Oswaldo Mowbray and, uh, or, or uh, English Pete Hickox. Yep, yep, yep. I uh, love uh, that movie. He's so good. Um, I gotta, I gotta give that episodic thing a look, man. The one you told me it's on Netflix. The Netflix that, yeah. So, oh, and he was also in Chang Chi. He was the Abomination, reprising that role. It's, so, I knew, I know Abomination shows. Up it's one scene. Don't, don't go into it thinking yeah. you're gonna see like him as the second villain or something like that. He, it's a nah, one scene. Nah, that, that wasn't that wasn't what I was expecting. But that's what I was even asking you today. I'm like, dude, I want to watch it. You're like, ah, I saw it and fun. I don't remember much. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. So, yeah, I'll give it a run soon. So this is where Pink enters, and he's asking like, is this bad? This is bad. This is really as bad. Opposed to, it, as opposed to bad? good? As opposed to good? <laughs> so, Buscemi, dude, I want to talk about him and how much he elevates this scene just from his presence. He's like, he's always right and arrogant, but he's right. And even though he comes off as a doofus, he's the one who's always, you know, right and essentially gets away at the end. Fucking well, Buscemi. Oh, yeah, no. It depends on how loud your volume is. Go on. At the end of the movie? No, I agree. If, you, if you want to count, yeah, on what yeah, I said. You, yeah, 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 yeah. It took me a long time. I think it wasn't until that uh, that tenth anniversary DVD cut where I picked it up. But yeah, you, he, yes, he gets out of the way. You hear him get right, right at the very end. You hear him um, get arrested outside of the outside of the the warehouse at the end. But you really got to crank it up. But if you listen to the background noise of the cops and stuff, they're pretty much putting Pink on the ground. So yeah, he gets away. He gets out the. He gets. He gets out alive. <laughs> you don't get away, man. Pink. Pink gets gets nabbed as soon as he as soon as he leaves the fucking the warehouse. But you really got to listen for it. But it's there. It's definitely there. You never noticed that. My friend, I don't know what version of Reservoir Dogs you've been watching. But in my version, Mr. Pink gets away. I yeah, could be wrong. I could be wrong. You, 
you gotta you gotta listen to that dialogue of the cops at you know out on it's it's distant it's like background dialogue but it's you know if you if, you know what i'm telling you i know who knows the answer to this hang on a second oh shit hey siri Does Mr. Pink get away at the end of Reservoir Dogs? Okay. I found this on the web for Does Mr. Pink Get Away at the End of Reservoir Dogs. Check it out. I will. Thank you, Siri. Siri takes me to a Screen Rant article where it says it remains somewhat cryptic about Mr. Pink's fate. Let's see here. Let's see. Let me scroll down. I know this is compelling audio for a podcast right now. <laughs> but I got to know these things because I've never, ever, ever. Here we go. Reservoir Dogs ends with Mr. Pink's escape. He survives because of his intellect and manages to secure the diamonds. Throughout the film, Mr. Pink speaks practically and muses about how people panic under pressure. He understands the game but doesn't feel inclined to uh, present a specific persona. Even when he complains about being named Mr. Pink, he quickly brushes it off and moves forward like a professional, at least in terms of the job itself. In Reservoir Dogs, Everything points towards Mr. Pink's survival. However, he doesn't quite walk off into the sunset. After Mr. Pink leaves the warehouse during the Reservoir Dogs ending, the attention shifts to a moment of truth between Mr. White and Mr. Orange. The camera pans across the building, showing all the dead bodies, all the dead tough guys. Mr. White, who initially shows compassion. Come on, fucking pop-up took me out of my reading. Hang on a second. Here we go. Mr. White, who initially shows compassion for Mr. Orange in the heist immediate aftermath, once again reveals his humanity and embraces his newfound friend. Mr. Orange admits that he's an undercover cop, thus completely destroying Mr. White's psyche. The camera lingers on the two characters until the end, with Mr. White presumably murdering Mr. Orange while being killed in the process by police officers. Reservoir Dogs' final dramatic moments completely shift attention from Mr. Pink's escape, as the Mr. White, Mr. Orange sequence plays out, the sound design makes it blatantly clear that something dramatic is also happening outside. Mr. Pink can be heard conversing with the police officers, but just barely. But whether he lives or dies is another matter. Tarantino ends Reservoir Dogs with a telling, fa uh, telling visual featuring Mr. White and Mr. Orange and Mask, another sequence about Mr. Pink's fate through cryptic sound design. I want to see what happens. <laughs> I would like to, but I told you, I mean, I heard you listen to that. Like it's like, like I said, he gets that weather. So what do we hear? Whether I'm, the cops I'm, kill I'm, him or not. I'm part of the audience focusing on white and orange in their final moments. I'm you, not it's, it's really like, if you, if you want to talk about what's being said verbatim, it's really, no, really but what tough are you, to make what am I supposed out. to hear that? <clears throat> you, you hear it's like, you know, you hear they're like, what, what it would sound like you know freeze and get down put your hands, put your hands up. up get down the right, ground right right you don't you don't hear them it's just something like that and you hear him trying to weasel his way out of it it's really really hard to make out exactly what's being said but you could tell what you're hearing going on on the opposite side of this door out in the alley is the sound of a man getting arrested 
you know, whether they, you know, shot the kill or they take him to jail and try him for, you know, murder and burglary, who knows, you know, but he doesn't get away. He gets, you know, he gets accosted by the cops at the very end of the film. And again, it's because of that, you know, that little audio clip in the last few seconds. Hmm. Okay. Well, folks, you learn something new every day. And I just learned that Mr. Pink presumably does not get away in the end. So that's on me. Uh, but I do know one thing, and that's one of my favorite scenes is right here. We got pink and white talking in the back while orange bleeds out. Uh, dude, can Kai tell like a single cigarette without doing that fucking letter trick in this movie? Every time he don't even, he he don't even get the cigarette cigarette, lit. He's trying to like snap light the fucking Zippo. Let's go through what happened. We're in the place, everything's going fine. Then the alarm gets tripped. I turn around and all these cops are outside. Right, damn, I blink my eyes and they're there. Everybody starts going apeshit. Then Mr. Blonde starts to shoot all the in. That's not correct. What's wrong with that? Okay, the cops did not show up after the alarm went off. Right, the cops didn't show up until after Mr. Blonde started shooting everybody. As soon as I heard the alarm, I saw the no, cops. No, I'm telling you, it wasn't that soon, okay? They didn't, they didn't let their presence be known until after Mr. Blonde became a madman, all right? I'm not saying they weren't there. I'm saying they were there. But they didn't make a move until after Mr. Blonde started shooting everybody. I mean, that's how I know we were set up. Come on, Mr. White. I mean, you can, you can, you can see look, that. Look, look, enough is Mr. White shit. Oh, wait, 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 man. Don't, don't tell me your fucking name, man. I don't want to know it. Jesus Christ, I ain't going to tell you mine. You're right, this is bad. How did you get out? I shot my way out. Everybody started shooting, so I blasted my way out of there. Yeah, but even when he does it, like he doesn't bring the flame close enough to light his own. Yeah. You know, that always bothers me. I, me too. Now, what me I did too. like about just before that scene is, or what I should say leads into that scene, is that, that static camera pan where it kind of sits level and just kind of shifts a yeah, little bit to the yeah, left. Yeah. And then you're looking down the hall. And it reminds me of that shot of, you know, uh, in in Taxi Driver, where Travis is on the payphone, you know, trying to call um, Sybil Shepard's character, you know, after their awkward date at the X-rated movie mm-hmm. and shit. And then yeah. Scorsese deliberately shifts the camera so your focus is no longer on him at the payphone. Now you're just staring down this long, empty apartment hallway, and it kind of makes you feel like, man, this is such a sad conversation to listen to. I don't even the camera doesn't want to look at this poor guy. Yeah, I'm right, to right. Apologize, you know, to her. So that's where I kind of feel like he picked. You know, he he kind of flourishes a little bit off off the Scorsese with what he does there. But yeah, the way the camera just shifts, and you got that long shot up the, you know, like the corridor through the doorway of pink and white you know, in, in there in the, in, in, uh, let's talk about, let's, let's just get it out of the way. What, um, what, and it took me a lot of viewings. And I think I told you one, even until like DVD where I could clearly make it out. What type of setting is this hideout? Like what is the actual place? It is like a old 
um, like a funeral service. It's like a morgue. It's basically it's an old morgue. Yeah, because we you know? see uh, Mr. Blonde see the casket on sitting sitting on a hearse. See the casket's kind of sitting upright, wrapped in plastic. There's a They're few back of them in, in, there. In, in almost in almost the embalming room, if you will. But watching this thing on VHS, those you know they're in the background. They're out of focus. It wasn't. You know, I didn't pick up on the fact that the hideout was a morgue. And that's, you know, kind of telling to the end of the film. You know, it's pretty morbid and gruesome. Um, and I, I was probably on my fifth or so. A friend of mine had to bring that up to me. He's like, did you ever notice? I'm like, huh? And I went back and looked and, you know, I got to kind of pause it and get close to the TV because well, nothing coming through in 1080 back then. Um, but yeah, they're, and they're basically in that embalming room having a conversation about was it a setup what to do at orange but you're right yeah like he's got to you know snap the zippo open snap Every a little time. spindle to get he does at least twice in this scene alone once for him and once for pink right and he still doesn't get his cigarette lit and he yeah, right Kytel doesn't get the cigarette near the flame um and also you we can, we can bring it up now um Kytel and his contribution to this movie so he came up with a million and a half of the budget for this movie because he read it and wanted to back it. He was so he wanted to see this get made and to make sure that happened, he uh raised it didn't it's not like it came from his money. It wasn't out of his pocket. Like no, he, he helped, raised it. He he helped raise the money though. I think what some somehow like what I've read is like Lawrence Bender's wife was going to an acting class. Yeah, and somebody in that wife, class was yes. associated with Kaitel. So the script mm-hmm. kind of landed in front of him and he yeah. helped raise the money. If you notice, one of the producers is you know, acclaimed 70s filmmaker Monty Hellman, who did, you know, Warren Oates' Tulane Blacktop, you know, and that was Kaitel kind of, you know, putting these people in, and DeVito for, for P6, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he, because before this, Tarantino, if it weren't for Kaitel, Tarantino had a little bit less than half a million dollars set aside to make this, and he was going to do it with more or less like friends and friend actors who were friends, and they were going to do like a low budget, low key, black and white, like Clark's was. It was going to be black and white. Um, but yeah, I think it was kind of like the same budget as carpenters for halloween like right around 300 grand um i think is what i read uh initially before Kaitel stepped up and raised what we just uh, talked about the the half the one and a half mil so yeah and they and they and they trimmed the fat all over the place like they were encouraged to wear their own wardrobe because the well they still exactly nice guy eddie's windbreaker is actually chris penn's windbreaker and you know cars over their cars the um, um hold on they're they're actually some of the vehicles are actually theirs the um the clothes yes the suits and all that like buddy hold that. hold hold on a second my audacity stopped oh shit i don't know how something came up some literally we were talking and I, I I I had no idea what happened. This thing is not no. moving anymore. I'll have to use your um 
your zoom file then like i did for me yeah sorry dude i don't know like i we you were in the middle of saying something and it's just a little something about audacity recording to an external storage device and it only yeah i just i just now noticed it it only got about five minutes so i'm 86 in audacity right now we'll fuck with that later you need to clean your computer <laughs> just give uh, it so I, wipe I, I don't have much on here i don't have hardly anyone here <laughs> yeah you're just gonna have to use the zoom file dude i don't know what happened there sucks but never did it before but yeah. maybe I, I don't know i have to check my storage i don't know sorry about that dude i had no clue uh, i don't apologize to me my audio is fine <laughs> um all right are you done are you done fucking around with that yeah if you're gonna just do zoom we're cool i don't i don't need to fuck with that uh, so Pink and White are going over the events of the botched robbery with uh, White nearly revealing his name and Pink just fucking flips out. It's like, don't you fucking dare. Like, don't you buckle like that. And it's like, it's a, don't tell me your name. I don't want to know it. I'm nope. sure as shit ain't going to tell you mine. Yeah, exactly. And this is, this is where you kind of get clue number two to the identity of your rat. If you, and it's a bit of a reach, but it's still kind of confirmed. Um, if you look you know, behind them as they're having this conversation, like we said, they're in the embalming room of this morgue and there's a shelf with different, you know, obviously, you know, fluids, like chemicals and stuff behind them. And to the left, you have a big pink bottle and a big white bottle and then separated a good four or five feet to the right is an orange bottle, but they're not all together. It's like it's separated. That was like your second hint. You know, he's not part of this group. Right. Yeah. Okay. Look for it next time you watch I know, it. I, I will. I will. I will. Yeah, definitely, gang. Keep an eye out for that. Next time you look at it, you'll kind of see what I'm talking about there. They, they're keeping the color orange separate from the other colors as a little hint to your... So, as discussed yeah. earlier, we never see the job. The job is not seen, no. no no actual heist, but it almost feels yeah. like we remember it based off of Tarantino's attention to detail, accompanied in between by, like, with shots, like, cuts of the getaway throughout the film. Like, yeah, yeah I mean, you never see the heist, see- but I feel like I've seen the heist in my head played out. Yeah, because they, they, they recount it, you know, between each other multiple times, like, what went on in the store, what went on you know, after the alarms went off. So it's, it's enough for you to paint that picture in your head, you know, cause the closest you get is, is really pink running down the street with the bag in his hand while the alarms are going off, you know, the three cops chasing. And that's about as close to the heist as you ever see. And even that's, that, that's just the tail end of it. Yeah. Well, we see pinks get away next. That's what it comes up after this is uh, him getting away. And he takes one hell of a hit yeah. from a car he rips, yeah. his, he rips his fucking poor woman right out of the window through the broken glass. So the, uh, he, cause he elbows the uh, her her window, and then just fucking pulls her the hell out. And just, <laughs> he drags, her, through drags, drags her, her over the window. Drags her over the broken glass. And one of the cops chasing him is uh, played by a very young producer, Lawrence Bender, of yeah, this film. Yeah. Uh, and then we cut back to pink and white and uh Blonde's extreme measures is discussed while White's combing his hair with a wet comb. Meanwhile, we get more light romantics from White. 
uh, Pink reveals that he got di- he's got the diamonds and he has stashed them. And him, he's like, "Come on, let's just go now. Me and you, me and White, go get them together and run before." You know, mention this is where the possibility of a rat's mention. Everything that comes out of the pink's mouth like total makes total sense. Um, even White, who comes off as the most stern and complete member of the group, is buckling. Um, everything. Yeah, he's 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 did the one thing that the professional should never do. He let his emotions get in the way. You know, and he's Mm -hmm. letting his heart think for him. Is like you know, no matter who the rat could be. He's concerned about the well-being of the guy bleeding out in the other room, so that that alone is is stopping him from thinking rationally. Which is the only one who's making total fucking sense the whole time. Which is so compelling to me because we know White, we know who he is. We see his backstory sort of in this movie. We hear about his like relationship, you know uh, what who he is to Joe and, and, and uh, nice guy, Eddie and everyone else. Um, we have a pretty good understanding of the type of person he is, his morals, his goals, like the way he lives, um, the, the, the things he believes in stands for everything happening. Now that this botched job has happened and he's pretty much had orange, you know, in his undertaking, he has just slipped and done everything ass backwards. Like he's like yeah, like complete, complete one. He was, yeah, yeah, he's he like was stern professional. Just swapping real identities. Exactly. He's like you know feeling sympathy for this guy who, in in reality, is not really supposed to have any feelings towards because they're just you know partners for a job. And once that job is over, he don't he's nothing to him. You know. So it's just he's doing everything so wrong. And you, you, it's it's just so fascinating to me. Like I said, because he's just a person who I would never take, you know, as a person full of such boneheaded mistakes that he's well, yeah, you, made you, or you tried see to that, make. You see the you see the dichotomy in his character when it shows, you know, current situation versus flashback. Flashback, he's stern, badass professional. Current situation, he's emotional human being. You know, which shows that there's you know still a heart and soul underneath these hardened criminals but it's completely but mr white's not supposed to have you know, a heart i'm not watching reservoir dogs to see these fuckers show no heart you're right in compassion you're to right. one another you know <laughs> no no <laughs> but it still shows that that and, and his his character's true name is larry Demick. yes um it still it still shows that, that larry Demick has a heart beating up beating under that stone cold exterior we learn all the real names except for Mr. Pink, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. Do we learn Mr. Pink's real name? I know we do uh, for blonde. No, no, no. We do no, for no. white. You, you don't. We do you don't for know, you, well. Obviously, you don't know, for orange, uh, blue or blue or brown, but you know they're. But we don't even really longer. know them. Period, yeah, they're, they're in the diner you know, scene, your, and that's it, except for Eddie, who yeah, uh, who uh, blue. We see that one scene towards the end where he's got you know the blood on his head. And he dies. Well, that's brown. That was Tarantino. Was brown. That's what I meant. Not blue, brown. That's I always. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Eddie Bunker. Eddie Bunker. Eddie Bunker is brown or blue. But yeah, but uh, so okay. Um, Mr. White, we see his backstory now. His initial meeting with Joe about the five man job detail. Um, we do hear a little mention of Marcellus Wallace. 
in this scene? Well, I call him Marcella Spivey because he's, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's Spivey. Okay. He's, I th- it's I thought- Spivey. Marcella, I thought Marcella Spivey always, always moved your eyes. So Tarantino's always had these badass gangster character names. I mean, come on. He talks about, you know, white what? pulling jobs with an Alabama for a couple of years. Alabama. I think that's not supposed to be Alabama Whirly. You know, like, so Tarantino has been kicking these names around in his head for, you know, for a while as cool character names. And he just repurposes them in later bits of work. And then there's another one too, that we're going to hear later on. The, um, is, uh, uh, the PO, the, the fucking Jack Scagnetti, Seymour Scagnetti. Yeah. Yeah. I always thought, cause I, I know Tarantino always threatened to do that Vega brothers movie with Michael Madsen and, uh, and John Travolta. Obviously, it'll never happen because I got too old. Yeah, I know. But I always thought a cool, I always thought a cool premise would be to bring Tom Sizemore's Jack Scagnetti from, um, you know, uh, Natural Born uh, Killers. Natural Born Killers, and his brother would be Seymour Scagnetti. Yep. So be like this, this kind of Devil's Rejects road movie. <laughs> right, right, exactly. And there's, no, <laughs> and there's no real good guys or bad guys in this situation at all. Like everybody's like morally gray. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the only thing we don't know is who the fuck would play Seymour Scagnetti. I don't know. It's always been up in the air. But I always thought that would be cool, like if they did they did a Vega Brothers road movie where they're being chased by the Scagnetti brothers for like a bounty or something. So Mr. Orange is now passed out from the blood loss. Um yeah, finally. A lot of blood loss. Yeah. White wants to wait for Joe to help, but Pink questions where Joe is since he's not there. Then White reveals that he told Orange his first name and occupation because he was dying in his arms, and the two end up fist fighting and pulls a gun on each other. While Pink calls him out, you're acting like a fucking first year thief. I'm acting like a professional. I I just so bad. Yeah, and that iconic shot of of Pink on the floor, on the floor with White standing right. over him, and both of them aimed. At, buddy of mine has that silhouette like tattooed on his wrist. That's All you gotta do is glance at it, you know, right away, awesome. like what movie that's from. It's it's just such a cool shot, like the way it's framed. Then the camera pans back, and here's Mr. Blind. Welcome to the party, pal. You two kids shouldn't play so rough. Somebody's going to start crying. He's he's drinking down that tasty beverage. That's a big kahuna drink, isn't it? It's, it looks like it, yeah. It looks like it'd be a big kahuna soft drink. You know, he's, you know he swung by a fucking big kahuna drive through on the way to the rendezvous. Well, I, I had heard, his, I don't know if you're bringing it up in the tidbits or not, but like, you know, Kirk Baltz, the guy that plays the cop, he wanted, you know, to kind of help get into character. So, and as we all know, that's that's Michael Madsen's, you know cadillac in the film that's his real yes. car you know because it goes on to become rick dalton's cadillac in once upon a time in hollywood um but yeah so what what kirk this is a cool story to kirk baltz is like come on man help me get in the character just throw me in a trunk drive around for a little bit and he's like all right if you're cool with it i'll, I'll put you know i'll put you in the trunk my caddy will drive around as he started driving madison's like you know what i'm gonna get into mr blonde's headspace so he does he drives him down this bumpy alley and then he goes to a fucking <laughs> drive-thru and orders a cheeseburger <laughs> fries and a milkshake nice. with fucking kirk baltz in the trunk the whole time <laughs> love it this is before he went into production. So his actions are called the question for being so trigger happy. We get that line. You're going to bark all day, you're little gonna bark doggy. You're going to bark all day, little doggy. You're going to bite. Oh, you're going to bite. Uh, so 
Yeah, Pink, like I mentioned before, his uh, choice of words. Crass dialogue in this movie. A lot of N-bombs, a lot of hard uh, dialogues, put that way. Um, hey, he's, he he don't care about the PC police, man. He's just writing no. cool fucking gangster speak in a cool gangster movie. He could be damned. He's, you know, it's not deliberately set to offend anybody, but he's like, this is the way street people talk. Do you feel Tarantino's offended more people with his dialogue over the years or less than than you how how do I want to word this? Do you think he's offended more people or less people than I don't know. Help me word this question. <laughs> well, I, are are we talking about comparing him to another filmmaker? No, or, just people in general, the, the, the I mean, general he's, audience, he, because he's, he's turned, this is, I mean, this is, like I said, this is something that is on, it's rare to hear dialogue like this spoken in a movie, uh, a big budget Hollywood movie. I, I don't want to, I use that term big budget loosely, sorry, but you know, you know what I'm saying? You know, it's something. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not, I, I, I don't know. I, well, it's, I, I think what the, the problem is, and it's it's more it's more society and culture to blame than than really anything is the fact what what most people are taking away from they don't want to speak about is you got a bunch of white guys saying the n word, you know, to the point where like eventually he's throwing it out there to where it's almost losing glorifying it, right? Not so. I, I mean, some people say glorifying, and I. I personally think like he's like you know what if I if I just keep saying it enough and enough it stops being no, a no word I don't think he's a sound. I don't think he's glorifying I was just putting words in your mouth as you were speaking I didn't I'm not personally I don't, I don't I feel mean, he glorifies glorifies the word I don't personally feel no Quentin I mean Tarantino let's face it Spike Lee that. uses it more and do the right thing and and a lot of his output in the and around the same time, but he gets away with it because he's a black filmmaker. But he and, can, you know, Samuel at the time, Samuel L. Jackson was standing up for Tarantino. He's like, the guy is just telling a story. He's not, you know, he's not a bigot. He's, you know, he, he's, he's not a racist. He's just like, this is how these people in this world talk. And he's not giving them a filter just because your ears might be uncomfortable. Buy a ticket for a different movie at that time. How about this? How about this you question? Know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll pose this question. Is there a world where this film can exist without the crass dialogue that we're talking about right now? No fucking way. Pardon my French. No, no, there's no way. Not, not, not with the same impact. No, because it, it just, it just, I'm sorry. It's part of it. It's part of, it's part of what makes it work. And I don't want to sound like a foul mouth, you know, sailor. No, I don't feel like it's either part of us it's, are. it's part I, of what, it's part of what makes it work and what makes these characters believable. Because I believe that people that would exist in this criminal underground and, and you know, running these unspoken, they will talk that way. Would, they will talk that way. Without right. any filter around each other, you know, and you know, if your ears got offended, fuck you, I'll shoot them off. You know, that's and, and that helps sell it to me. So no, I don't think it would work with if you try to water it down. Christ, can you imagine, you know, a a, a, a commercial TV edit for this film? It would be it, it would be the, it. them walking down the alley. It'd be it. <laughs> be just walk down the alley to a fucking little green bag. It'd be the, it'd be it. <laughs> your broadcast yeah contrary to what people think 
you and I were adults and we can have yeah. this conversation and yeah. a, you know, I, I don't feel there's anything. I don't feel it's anything that we're talking about right now or, or saying nothing that we've said so far in this conversation has come off as offensive or, no. or like we're trying to defend a certain side um, or sway or sway a different opinion. No, nope. it's just saying it like it is. And that is the fact that this is important dialogue. Yes. It's hard on the ears for some, um, but it's, this is like, this is, this is the hard truth. People talk like this. Yeah. I mean, what, 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 what one phrase we kick around a lot around here is art is not safe. Yeah, exactly. Art, art is not safe. Mm-hmm. And that's just Tarantino being real. And, you know, sucks he's white, but it's truth. It's, you know. Talented white screenwriter. Yeah. Yeah. So, Blonde, he's got a surprise in his trunk. (laughs) Yeah. Would you forget your fries to go in the shake? He's like, no, I had those already. Mr. Marvin Nash. On the way to the trunk, I like how Blonde reveals. And no, on the way to the trunk, um, Blonde reveals that Nice Guy Eddie is on his way. So, this is where we get Blonde's backstory. And also in Joe's office, just like Mr. White. Vic Vega, that's his name. And fresh out of prison. Like we said earlier, Seymour Scagnetti, that's his PO. Older brother of Jack Scagnetti. Uh, from Natural Born Killers, and we are immediately just uh, under. We, you could feel you just from this scene alone. You it tells you all you need to know. Thank you about the 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 vibe and the camaraderie between Vic Vega and uh, and the cabin. We family. see what Joe and Nice Guy Eddie what they mean to Vic. You know, all those ropes and strings they pull for him. Like, he mentions the P.O. They know who the P.O. is. And they uh, they, they, they make it look like he's going to have a nice job. But he's not actually going to work it. He's going to collect the paycheck but not actually do anything. He's going to get, you know, references and not have to do anything in return. You know, they're going to take care of him. Yeah, they set him up as a dock worker. And yeah, the guy comes right. to check on him. Sorry, Seymour, we had to send him on there. Oh, five look at that. He just wait. left. Yeah. You know, he's like, you're not even gonna, me. you're not even gonna work there. You're not gonna lift any crates. You're not even gonna work there. But as far as the records are concerned, you do. You get a five car in and out every day. And eventually, workers are very nice. Eventually, Vic mentions, you know, doing a big, you know, a serious job. And that's, and it's it's where you you get clued in when when nice guy he's like, Dad, I know you don't like using the boys on this one. That to me tells me like, like that he's he's so close he'd be like you know one of the compound bodyguards you know had this event like the corleone compound in the right. 40s he'd be one of the guys close to the fucking don you know what i mean and they wouldn't use him on just some you know some some heist they're going to make 60 percent off of because he's one of the boys you know he's closer than just you know thief they got trusted with you know in their book well, the show's hesitant if i'm making and you know, and, and but but we can tell Eddie really, you know, 
him and Vic are like brothers because he's just like dad. Pretty much. You know, yeah, I he definitely had that camaraderie. He's just they like know, dad. They know it's, they it's can Vic. Trust him. Exactly. He's like, you know, I know you have your doubts and your 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 hesitancy about all this, but it's Vic. And you know, look, we got a job. If you, we know we can trust him, he'll play by our rules. It fills one of the five slots you need filled. And he's just like, you Look, know, we got a job that involves five sense. strangers. You want in? And the scene ends, you know, we cut to Eddie. <clears throat> um, Eddie's calling daddy. I love how he calls, his, uh, he calls Joe daddy throughout the, the film. He's calling daddy yeah. on his 1991 cellular fucking brick device about the situation. Do I sound like I'm joking? He's driving around with a cop in his trunk. That line always gets me. Um, and he's on his way to the rendezvous because they, you know, we mentioned before that he's on his way. Uh, so he gets there. And on the way there, blonde, white, and pink are just fucking beating ass around. They tape him up. Let's talk about Chris Pine. Or no, right, I'm, well, let's hey, pin, hey, Chris Pine. Let's, let's talk about Chris Pine. All right. So you mentioned the scene where he's where he's on the phone. And I don't think he's talking to I don't think he's talking to um to to Joe. I think he's talking to Dub, his little the flunky, the guy that introduces these like big Vegas outside. I think that's who Eddie's talking to. Um and then as it cuts to like the the car, you know, it cuts to Eddie's car kind of speeding down the street. You notice there's a balloon kind of floating behind him. You ever pick that up? Not a balloon, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it cuts to the car, like you know, if he's like driving around with a fucking in his trunk. It's an orange balloon. That's hint number three. It's this orange balloon, like there's the oranges on the tail. That was your third hint. Yeah, there's an orange balloon right behind nice guy's Eddie, nice guy Eddie's uh, uh, car as he's heading to rendezvous. So uh, yeah, nice guy Eddie, played by Chris Penn, who up until this movie to me was like. Sean Penn's laughing stock little brother who played the no dancing hillbilly and footloose, you know, one month that, and yeah, you know, I mean, it wasn't until after this that I finally, you know, gave at close range to stay in court. And I really, really liked that movie. Yeah. I mean, around the same time he was in a film called Beethoven second with De- Debbie Maz- Mazar. That was my introduction to Chris Penn, little eight year old Eddie. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, man. Fucking Beethoven. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, fucking Reservoir Dogs. This. Um, uh, True Romance is what I was getting at. Not Reservoir Dogs. True Romance, Rush Hour. Um, fucking, he's funny in Stealing Harvard with Jason Lee and fucking uh, Tom Green. That Tom Green dude, movie, dude. Jesus Christ! I never bothered looking oh. at that film. I can't stand. I can't stand Tom Green. Ah oh, man, and he was also Stifler's dad in American Pie too, but his shit got cut, deleted. Because I remember when they were going. To the oh, production. was he really? Yeah, I you remember. know what? I think I remember that deleted scene. Well, when they filmed, when they went into production, because American Pie two was like one of those things that were like quick paced in the production because of the success of the first film. And I remember them when they announced the cast for the movie, Tim Allen was announced as Stifler's dad. But then for one reason or another, Tim Allen had to drop out and Chris Penn uh, ended up getting the role. And then the film came out and nothing, no mention, not a lick 
of anything Stifler's father related. And then the DVD came out. And it was either the DVD or one of those, like, American Pie re-release, or American Pie 2 re-releases with, like, deleted scenes right before American Wedding came out that had the scenes with uh, Chris Penn as the father, um, which I don't actually remember. I might have never seen them before, to be honest with you, because I'm a pretty big fan of American Pie 2. I've seen that one more than any of those films in the series, and I don't remember seeing anything with Chris Penn involved, so... It's like the one they like go to the lake for the summer. Or yeah, something, yeah, a yeah, yeah, yeah. The house or some yes, shit. yes, yes. So, but yeah, Steve uh, and um, Starsky and Hutch, a lot of stuff. There was there was a point where like Chris Penn was just no matter how small the role is, he'd just pop up. He you'd see him in like the most. Yeah, he was he shit. was happy to get work. Yeah. yeah, he was happy to be getting to work. Yeah, he was one of those guys that just like he popped up and you'd smile. You know, he had an, he had an essence like that. So, you know, Chris Penn, the younger brother or older brother of Sean Penn. That's his younger brother. Younger, younger brother. brother. Okay. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately. they play brothers in, uh, in At Close Range. Unfortunately, no longer with us. Uh, passed away uh, January 24th of 2006. Holy shit. He passed mm. away that long ago? 16 years? Yeah, dude. It's, yeah, it's been a while. It's He's been, been gone for 16 years? Yeah, dude. It's been Jesus. a long time. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking that. It's been a while. He was only forty when he passed. Jesus, man, he was he was doing. I mean, it was it was cocaine induced, dude. He was fucking. He was big anyway, and you know he's like his heart yeah, he's, blew he's, up. He's big basically. in this film, pretty much. Yeah, he was he was already overweight, and you know he was he was getting steady work. He had Hollywood money and Hollywood coke, man. And I hate to say wow. it, it, got the best of him. You know, well, yeah, yeah, Chris Penn was just when he showed up. You know that at least you had a likable presence to whatever film it was or whatever project it is, because he was a likable guy. Um, so that's that's just my grand take on Chris Penn's career. <clears throat> so, yeah, but I bet you, I bet you, uh, nice guy Eddie doesn't have mastodon tusks in his office like his father does. What the fuck is that shit, man? <laughs> He's got these two big ass toss behind his that's chair. <laughs> fucking, that's, that shit's got to be illegal. It's re- like $2 million worth of illegal ivory just sitting behind Lawrence. That's Deer. a representation <laughs> of his masculinity. Come on, man. Right. I know. It's what I'm saying. The three continue beating Nash up for information until Eddie arrives and then. This is where I noticed this guy enough. I'll tell you, you started the goddamn Chicago fire. That don't necessarily make it fuck with so. <laughs> and I remember this is where I first noticed that uh, uh, Blonde sitting on a hearst because he's in the back corner where the hearst is wrapped up um, and he's sitting on it. Brown's dead, but no one knows about Blue. Eddie has Blonde stay with Nash while Pink and White help him get the cars. He just, he's either he's alive or he's dead, or the cops got him. But I don't. Right. <laughs> um, and Eddie also says that they'll call for a doctor for Orange, um, which is bullshit, but whatever. Blonde, ah, yeah, Blonde doesn't like alarms. That's why he went on a shooting spree. Then that, that's. I told him not to touch the alarm, and they did. <laughs> if they hadn't done what I told him not to do, he'd still be alive. Yeah. I don't like alarms, Mr. White. Ah, uh, so then we get the scene. 
the torture scene. You ever listen to K. Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s? It's my personal favorite. Joe Egan and Jerry Rafferty were a duo known as Steeler's Wheel when they recorded this Dylan-esque pop bubblegum favorite from April of 1974. That reached up to number five as K. Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s continued. made Wes Craven and Rick Baker walk out of the, the Sundance screening. <laughs> the irony written on that statement is so strong. It's just, wow. Rick Baker. Well, I'd say now that here's, now, Rick here's Baker the question said, I had. Rick Baker said he wasn't prepared for the realism and that's why he walked out. Because otherwise, it's like, what are you walking out for? You're you do this for a living, my man. You you create right. this stuff, right. Wes. You did Last House on the Left, coming right. soon to the Film Effect podcast. But you still have no business walking out of a movie movie of this caliber. But you did. Now, so here's 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 the question I have about that particular moment and that particular screening. Sure. So obviously the way this theatrical release that everybody knows, it kind of goes the way of, of the Palmas Scarface where everybody takes it, away what they thought they saw. It and that some feathers. Feathers. Right. But if you remember on, on that 10th anniversary DVD, they showed there was, you know, they showed Tarantino opting out to include because he wasn't happy with the effects or whatnot, but they show it's like behind, you know, shot from behind Kirk Baltz, but they show the ear actually being sliced off. So yes, because was the that part, was that did it right. Right. Now was that scene included in the, the ver was, was it was like that scene was it before that scene got cut? And that's the, the, the that cut scene is what made Baker and and um and, and Craven just get up and go no no no. In the thirty years of this film's just, existence, I have never seen a scene, a still, anything of the actual slicing of the ear off because you see I, it, dude. I'm telling you, I've seen it. I remember it. Okay, well, you. You got to one up on me then, because of, of all the prints and versions of this I, film I don't, I've I watched over the years. I've never I seen. I don't think it's a Mandela. Effect. Never seen. What Martin I like Nash's though. ear actually get cut off. 
what what I what I do like though is how, like I said, he leaves it up to your imagination, like the Palma did. But the camera, what I love is how the camera just pans to the archway, yeah. what's spray painted over top of the doorway. Uh, I was paying attention to it, but I forgot what it says. <laughs> Watch your head. Thank you. <laughs> I knew it was something similar to that. Um, yeah, yeah. The camera pans to focuses on the doorway at the top. So of the apparently, ramp. this scene was so hard for even Madsen to shoot because he wasn't expecting mm-hmm. uh, the guy who was playing Nash to mention having children. That was kind of ad libbed. Uh, yeah, with him, you know, in his frenzy moment before he let the yeah, Madsen's Madsen's not keen on on violence as many as many violent characters as he played. He doesn't really take to it, you know. Susan's already uncomfortable with that, and then the fact that Kirk Baltz ad libs like, "God, please, I got kids." Madsen had just had a son. In fact, if you listen real close, when Baltz delivers that line. You can hear someone off camera very faintly, whether it's Tarantino or not. They're like, oh, no, no, because they knew it was going to almost kind of put Madsen over the edge and fuck up the scene because he was so emotional. I mean, it's it, the horror of the scene overall. It's just I can only imagine how, it, it, you know, Tarantino had to have felt something from just writing it. Yeah. It's just, it's a heavy scene. It's a heavy moment. I mean, we can sit here and talk yeah. about it and have a few jokes here and there at the film's expense. But in reality, I mean, this is a fucking, this is a fucking serious scene. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, and in 92, you didn't see, you didn't see a lot of Put yourself in Nash's shoes. You'll be scared shitless yourself. You know, I'm surprised it didn't pan down that. to his pant leg and a little stream of yellow comes out of it. Yeah. Right, right. Um, so Orange and Nash with Orange revealing, yeah, Orange and Nash here after, um, Madsen dips out. Well, Madsen grabs, you know, he, he, he goes back out to the car. He grabs, his, uh, he grabs his, you know, Jerry can of gasoline comes back in Steelers wheel still playing on, on K Billy's, you know, on the radio Yeah, and he starts dousing Nash and fucking gasoline. And you're like, Oh man, it's got to burn. Cause it's running down. You see his ears missing. And there's gasoline just pouring into the open wound, you know, and he says that little trail and he lights his zippo. He's like, y'all done? Y'all done? Y'all through? Because that's, you know? that's when he throws the have, have kids line is right before he right. hits it. And right. then out of and nowhere, pow, 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 pow. And then he's still firing, you know, an empty clipless gun. At, yeah, Orange at, at just Matt, unloads. Because you see clip. Blonde in the background kind of like trying to get up, but then he he just falls to his death. He's out. Yeah, the camera kind of almost makes a circle. Yeah. And while it was focused on Roth or Orange, Blonde has already staggered back several steps and then it hits the wall and just, you know, slumps down by the door. And Orange reveals to Nash who he really is and Nash says, yeah, he knew that already because we met at a party about five months ago through Frankie Franchetti. And yeah, he's like, Fred, your name's Freddie something. Yeah, yeah. Freddie Newendike. He's like, Freddie, how do I look? <laughs> <laughs> you cut my fucking ear fucking off. Kidding. I'm fucking dying. I'm fucking dying. Fuck, I'm fucking dying over here. <laughs> so, yeah, speaking of that moment, when Nash asks Orange how he looks, Am I the only person who notices, like, because it's, it's a split diopter shot? Yeah, it is. It is. And I mean, no, everything it's, it's split diopter where it's just the back of Baltz's head. And but Nash's Kimberl head, everything around his head is like a blur. 
Yeah, it's the only things that are in focus is orange. It's and a ash. visual blur. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's definitely on the left side on purpose. I just don't think the effect looks that good with the blur, the blurriness. Give it. A, I, why I can't it be it. a split diopter without blurriness? Why do we gotta have the blurriness? It doesn't. I don't know. It's it's brought me the wrong way. I like how it works. Also made a note too. This is when orange really, literally starts turning green. Like you've seen the the color is now kind of draining out of his out of his face. I mean, yeah, he he's, he's now been through the whole Roy G. Biv spectrum of, of colors. Um, <laughs> with his with his yeah, well, wound. Yeah, he's orange, but he's there's probably easily two pints of his blood just right there on the floor. And orange you know, reveals to Nash that there's backup. There's a units waiting a few blocks away. They're waiting for Joe to get there. And they're gonna come crashing in. Uh, and then we cut to orange. Sorry, Freddie. His backstory. Um, we meet his boss at the diner. Tells him about the man with the job that he's going there for. And we also hear the line from a diddly eye Joe to a damned if I know. Once again, recycled dialogue from other films in Tarantino's career. Uh, this one being from that's a signature line, though. I don't, I don't feel it's recycled. I think it's a signature line that he likes to toss out there. You know, because I've heard it more than just those two. Too. So and I, I want, I use it, and and you know, it's it's taken to me where I made it part of my vernacular. You know, I used to use it at, at work. Be like, I bet you everything did a lot of Joe to a Dan. If I know you're not getting that yeah. for that price. Yeah. So Freddie's boss is uh his name's Hold Holdaway. And yeah, and then what's what's with his attire too? Like, what am I supposed to take away from that? He's got a Che Guevara shirt on, <laughs> like a like a like a communist China, like you know what I mean? Like, what's, right. what am I supposed to take away from Hold? What am I supposed to get off a of Holdaway? In this I mean, that's just, that's his, like a, that's his a, choice a, of street clothes for 1992. I don't know, man. I, yeah, it's I don't know. It was like it just noticed like all of. Am I supposed to think he's a closet communist because he's got this, you know, this commie China cap with a Che Guevara T-shirt? You know, he's trying something. Um, so he know he needs to know every little detail. There, he explains the orange. He has to know every little fine detail there is to know about the Komodo when you're a joke when he's telling the story to you know Joe. Yeah, White you tell the Komodo story. And it cuts right away. And it cuts to him rehearsing it over and over and over until he gets it. Um, It's a story about the pains of being a dealer, and he's got to tell it over and over until we eventually see some funny shit that happened to you when you was doing a job, man. Yeah, think of it like a joke. Remember the important parts. The rest you make your own. And they're at the strip club, and he's rehearsing it to him. Um, And then we see the story. It cuts back and forth. It cuts to he's um, in the John with the fucking bag and there's like the cops and there's a dog that's like barking and they tell him to shut up and the, the, the cop the, this scene's weird because like he's like you're taking a piss and he turns back and they're all just like staring at him like a blank stare well what I what I like though is like when the when the you know at first like you feel that panic he talks about where he walks into the yeah yeah into the bathroom with a satchel full of full of weed awkwardness and exactly but a bunch of cops he's like a bunch of la county sheriffs and he's like they're waiting for you because now nah, just a bunch of cops hanging out in the bathroom but i'm scared shitless and it starts off with them staring him down and then they just pay him no mind and go back to their story yeah. and they sound like fucking idiots do you ever notice how stupid oh yeah this oh yeah absolutely telling his story about the traffic stop like tarantino's deliberately painting the cops out to be like keystone cops like, you better not <laughs> Such a goober telling, you know, telling a story. 
through his through his sheriff's mustache. <laughs> I got my gun drawn, right? And I got to point it right at this guy. I tell him, freeze, don't fucking move. And this little idiot is looking right at me, nodding his head, yeah, and he's saying, I know, I know, I know. But meanwhile, his right hand is creeping towards the glove box. And I scream at him. I go, asshole, I'm going to fucking blow you away right now. Put your hands on the dash. And he's still looking at me, nodding his head, you know, I know, buddy, I know, I know. And meanwhile, you know, his hand is still going for the glove box. And I said, buddy, I'm going to shoot you in the face if you don't put your hands on the fucking dash. And then this guy's girlfriend, this real sexy oriental bitch, you know, she starts screaming at him, Chuck, Chuck, what are you doing? Listen to the officer and put your hands on the dash. So, you know, then like, like nothing, the guy snaps out of it and casually puts his hands on the dash. What was he going for? This fucking registration. Ha! <laughs> You're kidding. No, man, stupid fucking citizen doesn't know how close he came to getting blown away. That close, man. So... This is a good point to talk about Tarantino and the element of time in his movies, because like it, like it, this is a fine example with all over the place. Now, my first Tarantino film was Pulp Fiction, and I don't think I've ever been more confused at a first time viewing than I was the first time I watched Pulp Fiction, because I had never seen something yeah. like that in the way the way he plays of time. He yeah, plays like, with. Yeah, there's it. not a linear. There, there, I don't think he's told a, 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 a linear story to date. <laughs> anyway. Grind? No, Death Proof? I've only seen Death Proof once in the theater. Is that consistent? Well, I, I guess it's close. It's, it's, Ish? It's, about as, it's about as close to linear as you would get. Maybe. I would say when it comes to you know, his catalog, because even once upon a time in Hollywood, right, we know plays, that. you know, a, a good bit linear, but it still bounces, you know, flashbacks and, you know. But regardless, but, it's, but, it's something about his movies I've always grown in appreciation for. And I, I anticipate it. I enjoy that, you know, his just hesitancy to, to stick to his, uh, a, a, a particular flow of time like he's just all over yeah the place. and 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 one you know another one who used to do it maybe not quite so much anymore kind of like, like keeps the viewers on the edge of their feet right exactly like guy Ritchie likes to do that too where he's like let me show you the outcome early so that you're on the edge of your toes to see how we got there right and that's really going to make you think you don't want i'm going to forget about how it ends here's how it ends now i'm going to make you question how we got there and i'm going to i'm going to keep shaking the rug out from on data yeah you know, I mean, he, he wants works. his audience to know every fine, you know, nook and cranny to the story, every little detail there is through this, you know, and it's just I think it's a fun way of him, you know, explaining his stories being a storyteller. Um, you're taking your, your your viewers or whoever wants to listen to the story you're trying to tell. You're taking them on a journey. And I think this is just unique. Yeah. This, this is Tarantino's unique way of just taking us on a magic ride. He's always done it in yeah. all of his movies and yeah. it's something I anticipate when I watch a Tarantino film, you know, man, it definitely, I mean, it works. It yeah, works. Yeah, absolutely. He, he finds a way to staples. bounce that, you know, to, yeah. And he, you know, he finds just the right moments to bounce you from here to here 
and back with just the right amount of information from the past, the future, and the present. It's just, it's like, you know, I would love to see an outline of his screenplay. Christ, it probably looked like that meme from Always Sunny with Charlie Day and the goddamn strings on the board. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Pepe, he was Pepe. So, <laughs> Orange picks up, or Orange gets picked up by White, Pink, Eddie. Before he leaves, he goes into his change bowl, dumps it out, and pulls a wedding band and puts it on. Something that's never brought up or talked about or acknowledged. What's what's going on here? Okay, so the way I interpret it was he I don't I don't think his character is married. No. Okay. No, but I yeah, I, I, I think, Divorce. you know, or I think Freddie Newendike's, you know, a single dude on, a, you know, LAPD who's, you know, got one of his first, you know, and probably his first gig yeah. undercover. Um, and I think about it like maybe he wore that wedding ring as just like part of his undercover costume when he first, you know, met these guys and used Long Beach Mike's referral and he almost walked out without it because he's not used to wearing it. And he goes back to put it on so as not to raise any questions from, you know, Joe and the rest of the gang is, the, you know, mm-hmm. where's your wedding ring this time around? That's how I interpret it. But again, he leaves that moment on screen for you as a viewer to make what you will out of. But it doesn't matter, you know, here or there what the reasoning is. But here you and I sit talking about it 30 years later. Yeah, because honestly, it's not something that's, really talked about that often when you talk to people about this film it's no one ever brings up the wedding band and you know it's yeah it had me scratch my head the first couple viewings but i think what i've what i've settled in on is that you know initially freddie wore this you know undercover as whoever he was when he met big joe and you know larry dimmick and the rest of the gang Mm -hmm. and now to show up without it would you know kind of had them looking at him side-eyed or you know draw a little bit more attention than he wants so he's got to remember to you know grab it and throw it on before he goes to this meeting mm-hmm. that's how i interpret it so this is where we get the detail scene of the job everyone gives their names that should do it hear your names mr brown mr white mr blonde mr blue Mr. Orange, Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? Because you're a faggot, all right? (laughs) Why can't we pick our own colors? No way, no way. Tried it once and doesn't work. You get four guys all fighting over who's going to be Mr. Black. But they don't know each other, so nobody wants to back down. No way. I pick. You're Mr. Pink. Be thankful you're not Mr. Yellow. Yeah, but Mr. Brown, that's a little too close to Mr. Shit. Mr. Pink sounds like Mr. Pussy. How about if I'm Mr. Purple? I mean, that sounds good to me. I'll, I'll be Mr. Purple. You're not Mr. Purple. Some guy in some other job is Mr. Purple. You're Mr. Pink. Who cares what your name is? Yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're Mr. White. You have a cool-sounding name. All right, look, if it's no big deal to be Mr. Pink, you want to trade? Hey, nobody's trading with anybody. This ain't a goddamn fucking city council meeting, you know. Now, listen up, Mr. Pink. There's two ways you can go on this job. My way or the highway. Now, what's it going to be, Mr. Pink? 
Jesus Christ, Joe, fucking forget about it. It's beneath me, you know. I'm Mr. Pink. Let's move on. I'll move on when I feel like it. So the name and suit inspirations, the names we mentioned before, the taken of Pelham 1, 2, 3, and the inspiration for the suits came from Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. Yep. So knowing that just... That's on HBO Max, by the way. If you haven't, seen oh, it, it is awesome. It just makes me. I believe it's under the. I'm, I'm, I believe it's under the the Turner Classic Movies hub. But yeah, awesome. it's there. It makes me love yeah. and appreciate Tarantino so much more. Like just stuff like that. Um, I'm a sucker for just you know old nods. Uh, for just old old school. Um, Hollywood themes and stuff like that. Just the fact that you got guys like in these suits. Um, there's just something empowering about the, all these guys in matching, you know, dressed down suits. Yeah, it works. I mean, you know, if, if you're if, if your job is professional thief, that works right. as your as your work uniform. Mm-hmm. Something just tells me that's your uniform for the job. Right. Like at least ever since 1992, it's the way it's always stuck. You know, I remember specifically um, one Christmas. You know, mom asked what I wanted. It's like around 94. I remember I was living in Georgia. I'm like, mom, I really want, I, I really want, you know, a, a nice tailor. I want to have a good suit. I want a nice tailored suit. And she set it up for me to go get fitted at like, you know, I don't even think men's warehouse was around, but I went and got my reservoir dog suit. I had it nice and tailor <laughs> fitted when I was 22 years old. Of know. course. I'm, yeah, I wore that something. I think I still got. I still got a black suit in the closet. My skinny black guy. I could. I could suit up at any point in time. Man, he's got photos of me dressed like that. Like I'll put it on when we either watching the Blues Brothers or this. I put my suit on to watch the movie. <laughs> and then we got Orange and White watching the bank with a little stakeout beforehand. Watch scooping the place out, going over the rolls. I love how the scene ends. I'm hungry. Let's go get a taco. <laughs> I'm hungry. Let's get a taco. And then we see White and Orange's getaway. And this is where we see uh, Mr. Brown die and Orange gets shot. So this is where we see the actual shooting that takes place. And Yeah, White, well, the Brown's driving. It looked like a Grand Torino. You know, he probably got around the corner of the bank and he just starts going blind because the blood's in his eyes. Yeah. And then they just fucking crash into the car. The look on Orange's face when he kills the civilian who shot him, it's like, oh, fuck. You shot me. Yeah, because they go to jack the car. You shot me first. God damn it. (laughs) Yeah, they go to jack this lady's car. She reads into her purse, pulls out a snub nose, just shoots shoots Orange right in the belly. Yeah, no one was All this time, he thought he took a shot, you know, at, at the at the heist or whatever. Now you find out he, he took the shot just trying to steal a car from, mm-hmm. you know, a soccer mom. So they are returned to the warehouse where orange tries to convince them that blonde planned to kill them all and steal the diamonds for himself. Uh, this is where Eddie comes in. Uh, and, and he's just, he's like, what defending him, him and shoots Nash, kills him. So Nash is out. And yeah. he flat out says, orange, you're fucking lying. You're a fucking liar. Explains to him that Blonde was a lifetime, oh, I'm sorry, a long, long time friend of his father's, 
once did four years in prison for him. Four years in the joint for him. Instead of saying and, his and name, once, he could have decided. No matter what they dangled in front of him. He never said anything. Now that we made good on our commitment to us, I mean, commitment to him, he's, he's just, just going to decide, decide out of the, out of the fucking, fucking blue to rip, to rip us, us off. Why don't you tell me what really happened? And then Joe arrives and announces. They would for it to just be more right. bullshit. Says the police kill Blue, but before Joe can execute Orange, who he suspects is a traitor, White intervenes, holds the gun, uh, holds him at gunpoint himself, insists that he doubts yeah. Orange is responsible. Eddie promptly aims at White. Mexican standoff here. Yeah, I was gonna say we got a classic Tarantino Mexican standoff. Fucking man. Tarantino Mexican standoff wouldn't be a Love Tarantino film without one. Nope. Um. Mary, stop putting that fucking gun on my dad. Bang, 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 bang. And then yes, both Joe and Eddie are killed, and White and Orange are hit. And then Pink, the only uninjured person, takes the diamonds and flees as White cradles the dying orange in his arms. Well, he doesn't have the diamonds. He just he just screams well, yeah, he flees. And we suspect that he has the diamonds because he has them stashed somewhere. Orange confesses yeah. that he is an undercover officer. White, pretty pissed off at the betrayal, slowly presses He's his like gun. He's like weeping to himself. Weeping. Like man crying. Presses the gun. Fucking the, the orange's chrome dome and the fucking background. It's pressed right up to his cheek. Oh man! Cops storm the warehouse. And then, order yep, white camera, the gun. Camera pans up, and all you're focused on because like you know it's it's a you know medium shot of white cradling orange's head exactly. with the gun to we his cheek. We just hear one gunshot, which indicates that he shot uh, orange in the head. And then we hear yep. other gunshots unload, and all we see is just Harvey Keitel just fall back. Just He just yep. falls back out of frame, end of the movie. I'm in the coconut, baby. Is Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs from 1992. All right, time for the million dollar question. Who shot Nice Guy Eddie? <laughs> I'm not answering this question, man. I'm not answering this question. Dude, you know, you know, it I actually know it, it became it, it became such a thing. I remember watching an interview. Oh yeah, it did. That's why I said Robert I'm not Rodriguez. It. Yeah, it was there was an interview with Robert Rodriguez from Sundance around like '94, '95, uh-huh. and it might actually be on that 10th anniversary day. But he's got a T-shirt on that says "Who shot Nice Guy Eddie." Now it was, it was in, it was like a long, you know, the story behind what, what, you know, how everything panned out, you know, how this went down or can I tell you? It's probably my trivia tidbits, but go on if you want. Let me tell the story. So, um, his squib went off early. So Penn had to fall. Right. And I distinctly remember, like, is like I turned Big Daddy on to Tarantino. I showed him this film, and I got him into the whole, you know, nice guy thing. And nobody, even me and Justin, would have at length discussions about it for years. But I remember on that tenth anniversary disc when you put the bonus disc in, right? And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, you know, a full motion, you know, uh, uh, startup menu, but it was, it wasn't a static menu either. It was a shot of that Mexican standoff. It is a wide shot. Okay. And my big daddy is the one that points this out is you see like there's lines drawn 
as you know to where the gunshots ultimately go and there's like a flash of a dotted line coming from from white's white's gun to eddie so what they wound up having to do because Penn's squib went off early like they worked it into being like mr white shot eddie on his way down after you know gotcha you know what I mean? But it wasn't right. like it had been a long running thing for years. Who shot nice guy, Eddie? And it legitimately was a special effects gaff that caused it to happen on screen. They made fucking t-shirts out of it. And then he just kind of put it to bed with that 10th anniversary release. If anybody's got that, throw in your second disc and watch that uh, menu before you can, you know, select your features and stuff. And you'll see what I mean about the dotted line. But yeah, what missed ultimately Mr. White shoes, nice guy. Eddie. Tidbits. Now remember that, because the more you know. 
All right, so the film's budget was so low that many of the actors were asked to simply bring their own clothing as wardrobe, most notably Chris Penn's track jacket. The signature black suits were provided by uh, the, the designer for free, based on her love for the American crime film genre. Steve Buscemi wore his own black jeans instead of a black as instead of black suit pants, and Michael Madsen wore a jacket and pants that came from two different suits. Sounds like Michael Madsen, I know. Um, Madonna who is the main topic of the opening conversation, really liked the film, but refuted Quentin Tarantino's interpretation of her song, Like a Virgin. She gave him a copy of her erotica album, signed to Quentin, It's not about dick, it's about love, Madonna. The budget wouldn't cover police assistance for traffic control, so in, in the scene where Steve Buscemi forces a woman out of her car and drives off in it, he could only do so when the street, the uh, traffic lights were green. Uh, according to the tra- uh, according to the interview on the DVD, Michael Madsen says that Kirk Baltz asked to ride in his trunk. Uh, you, you told the story already. Tim Roth yeah. refused to read from the film. He did insist on going out drinking with Quentin Tarantino and Harvey Keitel instead. He agreed to read for them when they were all drunk. Um, armed with, I'm sorry, it was a lot lower than what I said. I said 300 grand, it's 30 grand. Armed with yeah. 30 grand and a 16 yeah. millimeter camera, Tarantino was going to set them make the picture of black and white friends, including Lawrence Bender as characters and yada yada. And then Keitel came in. $1.5 million later, the film became what it is. Tarantino wanted James Woods to play a role in the film and made him five different cash offers. Woods' agent refused the offers without ever mentioning it's Woods, as the sums offered were well below Woods' usual salary. When Tarantino and Woods later met for the first time, Woods learned of the offer and was annoyed enough to get a new agent. Tarantino avoided telling Woods that uh, which role was offered because the actor who played the role was was uh, magnificent anyway. It has been speculated that the role to which Tarantino was referring to was Mr. Orange. It was the very first screening of the film that was shown at Sundance where Tarantino stood up in the middle of the movie and told them to stop projecting due to the fact that the entire film was shot in widescreen and the projector was only a um, had normal-sized lens, so it wasn't meant for widescreen. Uh, so half of whatever was shot wasn't on screen. Uh, on a day off during the shoot, Lawrence Tierney was arrested for allegedly pulling a gun on his nephew, Michael Tierney. According to Quentin Tarantino, Tierney was taken from his bail arrangement to the set. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me, man. That guy's got some crazy stories. Like, everybody's ever worked with him is scared they're going to kill him. Yeah. You hear that story about when he, when he was on Seinfeld? He was supposed to have a re- recurring role as Elaine's dad. But apparently when he did that one episode, he, you know, they saw him steal like a fucking kitchen knife from the from the set and stash it in his jacket before he did a scene everybody's like they're like oh i don't think this lawrence tierney guy's a yeah no. I, I don't think he's a hundred percent not at all 
So finally, the title for the film first came to Quentin Tarantino while visiting a production company and noticing that they had a pile of unsolicited scripts under the label Reservoir Dogs. All those scripts were fighting with each other for attention as dogs trapped in a reservoir tank. The name got stuck in his mind. Apart from his orig- apart from this origin, initially told by Tarantino in interviews, in recent years he started to tell another version that occurred via a patron at the now famous video archives. While working there, Tarantino would often recommend little-known titles to customers, and when he suggested uh, Louis Mal's um, Au revoir, l'enfance. The patron mockingly replied, I don't want to see no reservoir dogs. The fact that if this last origin is true is or just a funny story device to answer the question of the origin of the title remains unclear. The title is never spoken in the film. However, there are two references to dogs, the German Shepherd present in Mr. Orange's flashback, and when Mr. Blind calls Mr. White doggy. Okay, let's talk about the box office for a second. Go to box office receipts. In the operational funds box, we will deposit 250,000 American dollars. You take it out, we put more in. I want receipts. So the film premiered at Sundance January 21st, 92, almost 30 years to the day. Before getting a premiere across the nation on October 9th, 1992. When I say across the nation, I use that loosely because it opened up across 19 screens. And the widest point was 61 screens for this film. Although, opening weekend, it grossed $147,000 coming in in 15th place. Second weekend, it went up 47.3% and came and made uh, 217000 Total gross was $2.9 million against a budget of $1.5 million plus. Um, let's go to the Critics' Corner. Has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 92% based on 71 reviews, with the critical consensus saying, "Thrumming with unintelligent, um, thrumming or thrumming? What the hell is that word? I've never seen or heard that word before." T h r u m m i n g. Yeah, I've never used the word thrumming in my life. But thrumming okay. with intelligence and energy. Reservoir Dogs opens Quentin Tarantino's filmmaking career with hard, yeah, with hard hitting style. Metacritic, it's got a score of 79 out of 100 based on 24 critics' reviews, indicating generally favorable reviews. Empire Magazine named it the greatest independent film ever made. Uh, New York Daily News compared the effect of Reservoir Dogs to that of the 19, I'm sorry, 1890 film, 1895 film, La Rive d'un Train de Gare de la Quiota. I'm going to butcher that name I just did. When audiences supposedly saw a moving train approaching the camera and ducked, uh, they said that Reservoir Dogs had a similar effect and people were not ready for it. 
Vince Canby of the New York Times enjoyed the cast and the usage of nonlinear storytelling. He similarly com- complimented Tarantino's directing and liked the fact that it did not often use close-ups in the film. LA Times also enjoyed the film and the acting, particularly that of Buscemi, Tierney, and Madsen, and said Tarantino's palpable enthusiasm, his unapologetic passion for what he's created, reinvigorates this venerable, uh, venerable plot and mayhem aside, makes it involving for longer than you might suspect. Let's see, one more. The Washington... No, Eves. Let's talk about Eves and what he thought. He was less enthusiastic. He felt that the uh, the script could have been better and said that the film feels like it's going to be terrific. I'm sorry, terrific. But Tarantino's script does not have much curiosity about the characters. He also said that Tarantino has an idea and trusts that idea to drive the plot. And he gave the film... Two and a half stars out of four, and said that while he enjoyed it, and that it was like a very, and that it was a very f- good film from a talented director. I liked what I saw, but I wanted more. Can't blame him. He probably wants that heist. Um. Yeah, that's what that's what I'm thinking. Like, but I mean, you would figure Eves would get that. Like, you know, I yeah. know now that the heist is completely unimportant to the story being told. I mean, initially, yeah, when, you know, you think that's what you're getting, especially you never seen it before, mm-hmm. you read the back of the box, you're like, oh, cool, a heist movie. Then you never see the fucking heist. Yeah, you don't right, need to, right. you're MacGuffin. All right, let's talk pros and cons. Before I take on any job, I look at it the same way as it takes to make the thing positive versus negative. Now, you mix a little bit of this with a little bit of that, and you get a reaction. All right, let's do pros first. For me, I wrote down Tarantino's attention to details. Although controversial and sometimes crass, I appreciate the realistic dialogue throughout. Comedy is important. Stellar beginning to a legendary career. And finally, everyone nails their roles like they're Freddy themselves. How about you? What are your pros for this film? It's, I mean, it, it it definitely like kicked me in the chest and blew my hair back that first time. I'm like, shit, man. When I watch that movie, I'm like, this is why I like this art form. And I kind of felt like, you know, this was... I don't want to say my generation speaking, but it felt like it was made, you know, for me, it was what I found cool, just like, you know, pop culture and, you know, you know, crooks and bad, you know, there's not a good guy in the bunch and everybody looks cool and everybody's talking cool. And, you know, it kind of had a little bit of a noir feel on it. It kept me on my toes. Like, you know, okay. So I know somebody's a rat. Let me play the game of who's the rat while I'm watching this. Right. You know, I just and and it's it's one of my all time favorite movies ever fucking made because like it was that moment in time for me. You know, I I, I wish I could go back to you know to, to that summer when I was seventeen and experience it all over again. I really do. I just you know, I and that's my I have no cons. I I can't say anything negative about this film. I fucking love this movie. 
I, I can't say a negative thing about it. It's gotten a lot of slack. And like we said before, it's definitely an unpolished gem. But again, it's his independence. It's, it's his first one. You know, it doesn't have the, you know, the studio sheen behind it. And that's what helps it fucking work is that low budget feel. And, you know, I, I didn't realize at the time that, you know, he was not giving nods to the Palma and, you know, Kubrick and uh, uh, Scorsese, but I felt, I, I felt their presence without realizing they were there. Does that make sense? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. At being at, at the age of 17, like watching like, this is like hands down the coolest movie I've ever seen. And dad'll love it. Mom's never going to fucking watch it in her lifetime. <laughs> so I kind of felt like I was doing something bad, you know, but I, I, to this day, it's, it is the king of independent films, greatest, and you know, arguably probably the greatest independent film ever made. I guess you could put one con in there and I wrote down no heist. Although there's still something about this that I appreciate. Um, let's move it's, right what, it's, it's cool though. It leaves it up to you. Like you, 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 I like, I got my own heist. I kind of see how that heist went in my head. It's a little bit different than yours, but we both kind of look at the same heist, you know? And I, I feel like it works without it. Like I don't need it. I've appreciated that over time. All right. Let's go to Mulligan moment. If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? Uh, for me, I put down one small thing. Just maybe one or two, if there's time. Uh, scenes that showcase Brown and Blue. Just give them something other than the diner scene and the one scene with Brown dying before White and Orange's eyes. Because um, they're just... Otherwise, yeah, they're a part of the, the story. They're an important part of the plot. But they're no different than your average background character in this movie because there's really nothing for them in this film at all. You see them in the diner and you see them interacting in the flashback to them getting their names and going over the job from Joe. Other than that, not a whole lot going on with these two. It's, you know, one of them's the filmmaker, so I can understand why we're not showing that much of him. But the other one, you know, it's fucking Eddie Bunker, you know? So, shit. That's that's that. Just, you know, give them a little bit more to chew on. And um, not that it makes the film better, but that's not really what I'm getting at. I'm just not perfect. If I wanted to change one thing, that's what it would be. Just throw in a scene in to give them some, a little bit more. That's all. But you. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't take anything out. Everything works no, exactly where it exactly. is. Exactly. Um, I I I've always felt like yeah I kind of wondered what you know Brown and Blue were doing there outside of you know making it a five man job but only three of them are really in you know your audience focus. Um, now word around the campfire was that, that that Tarantino wanted to play the pink role and made Buscemi read for it and he's like well fuck damn I can't do it that good you got it I guess I'll just play Mr Brown. Um, yeah I so, read that story. Yeah. Um, I would have to say that would be about it. I mean, even, but I don't think the film were, uh, doesn't work without it. I just accept the fact that, that these two guys, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, we're supposed to focus on five people, three of the job guys and the two bosses. So we got two jobbers that are just going to kind of go by the wayside when, 
you got to deliver a 90 minute film and i'm right. okay with that yeah. okay finger looking good it's finger licking good so hard to pick it is so hard to pick one probably if i had to pick it if like like some of our characters in this film you put a gun to my head probably gonna go with the first scene between uh white and pink in the um in bombing room just when they both get back to the rendezvous and just their back and forth this kind of macho attitude that that the grandstanding this, like this macho demeanor between Kaitel and, and and Buscemi you know, for those like five to ten minutes, they're kind of like just they're just trying to outact one another, and it's just so fucking awesome to see and watch done right before your eyes because they're just two just so fucking they're just two actors that are just incredible. They are incredible, and they're just giving it their all to each other, and I believe it. I'm eating up every fucking moment of it. So that's mine. Um, I'm probably gonna catch a little bit of flack for this, but for me, it's it, it's the the Steelers wheel segment. I mean, it's to this day I can't hear that song without seeing you know Michael Madsen dancing his little jig with a straight razor. You know, like that scene was just so uncomfortably iconic that it's now burned that image in my head. It'll be there for life. And it drove two acclaimed filmmakers to get up and walk out of a Sundance screening. I didn't know that. Um, but it's just like like that. And it's not because like I'm big on torturing cops. Don't get me wrong. No. I just think that like just the impact and the gut punch that scene delivers, but also set to this, this was normally a happy, peppy little song. You know, and arguably the most uncomfortable moment you're ever going to witness in your life, you know, that, that juxtaposition is just, it works, but it shouldn't. The song know? makes the and, scene harder to watch. And it does, because you're kind of tapping your toes and you're like, oh, fuck, this dude's getting shredded to ribbons, you know? Yeah. It's just, I to this day, I'm just always that. And, you know, the the whole diner scene, um, for everything from, you know, spinning from the opening shot to, you know, the Reservoir Dogs title card landing mid credits. If you want to, you know, lump, you know, that the diner in the alley is one scene and this. But yeah, the, the Steelers wheel segment is is hands down my finger like a good runner up is going to be the opening five minutes. All right. Let's talk about our MVPs of the movie, shall we? All right. Now, you might think I'm a little biased, but I take my job as a presenter very seriously. I will show no favoritism. I am here to honor excellence. And the most valuable player is... Um, you go first. Who's your MVP of this, this movie? Tarantino. I mean, he kicked that door down and said, listen to my voice. I've got fucking stories to tell, and this is how I'm going to tell them, you know? And just like, I'll be damned if those of us in the know didn't say that the cool folks stood up and took notice right the hell away. Yeah, Tarantino's your MVP in this because you talk about one hell of a gang-busting debut inaugural film. I mean, 
I wouldn't count that my best friend's birthday thing, which had like, you know, Roger Avery's got 15, 20 minutes of it somewhere on VHS. But no, this was his first one. And like he made his name known, like I, the, I am the new Hollywood. This is called independent cinema. You know, that's what, so that's why he's my MVP. Um, again, another fucking hard one. It is. It's I, a tough. It's a tough decision to make. I see how you came to yours. Tarantino makes all the sense in the world. Probably would put him on there as mine if it weren't for the fact that Harvey Keitel is just a little bit better in this movie than he is. And I just think he is just as far as acting goes. Oh yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm not talking about Tarantino's. No, 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 no. You're you're not wrong for giving your answer though. I'm just trying to make that a point. But what I'm saying is, acting just as far as acting goes, no one is on the same level as Kaitel in this. Everyone, no, everyone's no, no. on their and A game, but Kaitel is on his fucking A A A A A game. You know, it. Yeah, he's the most seasoned. Uh, at this ten point, ten steps ahead of everyone you know, else. Your most seasoned person in the cast, and if anybody you know knew what he had in his hands as being a piece of coal that he, that is going to eventually become a diamond, it was that guy. So he went all for it, and it shows. And I agree with you. I can't say that I had seen him deliver a performance that good prior to this and i can't think of a performance even great performances afterwards i don't think anything has come as close as to what he you know what he delivers here as as mr white i mean it's no sister act but this shit is just (laughs) (laughs) no it it's it's just it's it's all time stuff it's 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 an all-time effort from Harvey Cattell on this. I love it to death. It'll never it'll it just it'll just be implanted in my in my head forever and ever and ever. I'm yeah, good I with mean that. the one one that you know one one that comes close and makes a good second runner up is his performance in Abel Ferrara's Bad Lieutenant because he does, you know, he he plays a very despicable role. Oh yeah, he does. Pretty fucked up shit on screen for the sake of the art. He goes ahead and does it because he loves the art he's delivering. But I mean, it's a, it's a close runner up, you know, to what he delivers here in Reservoir Dogs. I mean, even you know, Mean Streets and Taxi Driver. Yeah, they make the top five, but you know, he he outdoes himself with this role compared to you know Sport and mm-hmm. and you know your lead in Mean Streets. All right, final thoughts. I say we uh, tie a bow on it and put her to bed. Um, final rating. Final, well, yeah, we you know final rating too. So um, I went ahead and gave this five stars. Yeah, me too. I would five. It's 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 always been a five out of five for me. You know, it's just it's just it's just something about it, man. It's just cool and like I didn't realize till I was watching it. Um, you know, the other day for the show, um, how much I miss revisiting it as often as I used to, because I, I used to watch it like every couple of months and it's my first time watching it in quite a while. In fact, I think I even told you, 
Um, that was my first time actually seeing it in high def because I watched it on HBO right. Max. Up until then, the best I had was that 720, you know, DVD, the 10th anniversary. I mean, it's it's um, so it even it, it popped even more for me. Um, and I'm just like, I turned to me and I'm like, I just, I just realized I know this movie from beginning to end by heart. Like I caught myself saying the dialogue is different characters. This was one that I didn't realize I could do that with till the other day. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's brutal. It's in your face. It's memorable. It's incredible. It's, it's excellent. It's so much about this film. I can't. Just, yeah, it's yeah. It's, there's no, there's never gonna be a film like this. As far even no, it, no. even for a first time filmmaker, you're never gonna get a film out just out the belt mm-hmm. out of the way just like this. I can't never. think of anybody who came from no it was like literally a nobody, and this would made them. I, I can't think of a first time filmmaker that's delivered product at such. Um, th- 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 that reaches this level there's been some good ones believe me yeah but i don't think anything anybody has done wes anderson's bottle rocket you know guy Ritchie's lock stock two smoking barrels you know yes they were they were good they were different they were cool there was a different voice to be heard you know and this wasn't your granddaddy's hollywood but it did. They didn't deliver the inaugural punch like tarantino delivered in 92 they just didn't and that's it. But before we go, I want to let you all know that this episode is sponsored by who else? But of course, K Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s Weekend. <laughs> and all that being said, this film definitely, definitely gets the film effects seal of approval. And that will bring things home for this edition oh, yeah. of the show. One down, many more to follow. Please. We put a lot of time and effort into these shows. So let us know how we're doing. We really do. By dropping a rating. And review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're able to do such a thing. It helps us know yeah, you how see we're it doing. Show up on your socials, leave a comment. You know, it's, I mean, we can't, you know, you guys get to hear us every week. We can't hear you unless you. We want to know how we're doing. You know, it, we, it helps us know really that, just that. And it also, it helps us get noticed through this thing called an algorithm, guys. So the more people talk about the film effect, the more these platforms that are hosting us are like, hey, more people are talking. Let's push this to more and more people. That's how it works. All you got to do is spark up a conversation, hit the play button more than once, and just let the system work itself out. But seriously, um, just in any way you can support the show, uh, do so. We... Uh, we have merch at tpublic.com slash user slash the film effect podcast. No, slash film effect podcast. Um, we're on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on there. We're at Sean. Uh, that's going to be the film effect podcast. And we are on Twitter where please, guys, uh, give us a follow on there. We're trying to get that, um, that, that, um, uh, that. That follow count up. Uh, where can we be found on Twitter? At Film Effect Pod. All right. And this is a new one for us. So check it out if you will. We are on Tick and Tuck doing our thing there. <laughs> where can they find us at on that platform? 
Is that at Film Effect Podcast? There you go. And real quick, short and sweet emails. Where can they be directed to? The Film Effect Podcast at gmail.com. All right. Uh, don't forget to check out our backlog. Excuse me. Don't forget to check out our backlog of previous episodes on our website at podpage.com slash the-film-effect-podcast. Coming up on the one-year mark in a few weeks. So many shows. This is episode 74, so we have 73 others to check out right there. Uh, coming up, and if you subscribe to our new Patreon, you get some bonus episodes, and everybody's going to get access. Just to. about to mention that, guys, we have a Patreon. You can yeah. really, really help us by supporting the show through that. Yeah, different tiers. Um, it's really we're not we're not asking. Us, you know. We're not asking for a whole lot from you guys. But uh, for those no, who do want to kick no. in a little extra, it's a way for you to join the show. But for those who definitely do kick in, you're going to get some perks, a little extra. So check us out on there, patreon.com slash the Film Effect Podcast. Uh, we'll be back. Yeah, we just worked up a newsletter. I'm proud of that. There's, there's a lot of stuff on there. Uh, so yeah. yeah, check us out next week, guys. We come back at you talking about a film that you all voted last month on the Twitter poll. Because we do those once a month on Twitter. Follow us on there once again at Film Effect Podcast or at Film Effect Pod. Uh, next Monday, or I'm sorry, next Tuesday or this coming Sunday, if you're a Patreon member, we will be covering a random sequel, but still one of my favorites from the franchise. We're going to Elm Street, guys, us and the Dream Warriors, and talking about, <laughs> yeah. Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors, is our episode next week, as voted by the viewer, uh, as voted by, as, yeah, as voted on by the audience on Twitter. It's going to be a fun one. I love Dream Warriors. I really do. So. Yeah, that was, that was first one I ever saw in the theater. Yeah. So, going to be a fun episode. So, yeah, yeah. um, we got socials, check. Patreon, check. Backlog, check. Yeah, other than that, um, thank you guys for listening. For Yeah, for real. You know, everything. And uh, yeah, do it for you. And we're going to keep on keeping on. So until next week, when we travel to Elm Street, Sean, do the damn thing. All right, gang. Ed and I shall see y'all next time. When the theater lights go dim. The opening credits begin to roll. Fuck you, Yankee Blue Jeans. I'm Ed. That's Sean. It's been fun, but now it's done. (laughs) Bye, Felicia. See you guys. This concludes our broadcast day.